When I first left the LDS church, I remember trying to look around for a place for me and my family to worship on Sundays. As I was doing my searching, it wasn't like there was exactly big fundamentalist church buildings on every corner. This meant that I had to do my due diligence and really look around. Now for a guy like me who might be just a little bit lazy, who likes his recliner, a bag of Doritos, and football a little too much, it felt daunting. I remember thinking, man, I wish this was easier. Well, starting today, I'm hoping to make that search for other folks a little bit easier as I begin a series of podcasts on different Mormon fundamentalist churches. Today, I have Stephen Nielsen on the podcast. Stephen is in the leadership of a Mormon fundamentalist church called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the Kingdom of God, also known as the Nielsen Nailers. Today, during our conversation, we cover Stephen's personal history, which I have to say is absolutely fascinating since it covers a lot of modern-day fundamentalist history and then move on to what the Nielsen Nailers believe and some of their practices. Along the way in our conversation, we somehow managed to touch on a large number of gospel topics and principles. Not only do I find Stephen to be a great guy, I'm glad to call him a friend now. I learned a lot in his conversation. And just a side note, I attended church with the Nielsen Nailers a few weeks back, and everyone there was just as warm and friendly as Stephen was. So stick around for a fascinating conversation on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Look, it's no secret that our society has become much more crude and coarse. To become and raise men and women of virtue and character is a Herculean task. To help with this, I have recently wrote and published a book. Now, back in the 1700s, Washington had a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a book with 110 rules that talked about how to conduct yourself like a civilized person in society, something that today's society is sorely lacking. What I did is I went back through the book and I reinterpreted his original sayings for the 21st century. So the book is laid out in a way in which you see Washington's original rule. Right below that is my explanation for the 21st century. And below that, you'll find two or three examples of where to use this in the real world. Now, to go along with this, there's a workbook that helps parents teach these principles and practices to their kids. To find the book, go to mormonrenegade.com, go to the bottom of the page, search out the blog post, and order your copy today. I can bear personal testimony from personal experience that this is an invaluable tool to help you raise men and women of virtue and character. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Steven, thanks for being here, man. Oh, glad to glad to do it. A little nervous, but glad to do it. That nervousness will go away in a second. We get I get that a lot. Um it'll go away in just a few minutes. It when, once people once people figure out this is a conversation, not an interview, things go go a lot better. So, but how's everything been going for you since the last time we talked? Well, busy, just really busy, but uh, but really good. It seems like everybody's busy these days, and and but I've been I've been on the opposite side of it, so this is great. So yeah, yeah, no, it's it surveying's kind of the same way. It's either you're so busy you don't know what you're going to do, or there's no work at all. It's feast yeah. or famine. But so 
we were set up by a mutual friend who, uh, shout out to Sean Anderson. Um, I had heard great things about uh, your church. I mean, absolutely fantastic things. And so I, I really wanted to take some time to interview somebody about it. And as I reached out to Sean, because I knew he had a few connections there, he, he gave me your number. And when we talked, it was a great conversation there on the phone. So I have no doubts this is going to go well. But what's the name of your church again? Well, officially, and, and it's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Kingdom of God. So that, that whole long title, which is, which is interesting because, because it's, you know, it's close, you know, close resemblance to our mother church. Sure. And, uh, but, uh, that's that's the name that's the name of our church. We people will often call us the Nielsen Naylor Group, right? Primarily because of of my dad was uh, my dad was in charge, and uh, there's also uh, Frank Naylor was an old an older gentleman that uh, was in charge. So we people tend to think of us as more the Niel, Nielsen Naylor Group. Gotcha, gotcha. Can you speak up just a little bit? Absolutely. Um, so, t- tell me a little bit about you. Were you raised in this? I mean, are you are you from fundamentalist stock, so to speak? Yeah, I was born and raised. Uh, I was born in Salt Lake, and uh, was been raised in this all my life. Uh, as a young boy, I think about uh, we were probably five years old. My dad split the family apart, not necessarily between mothers, but. Between different ones of the of the kids, and I ended up going down south, into Colorado City, and living there uh, with some of my sisters who were going to school, and that was uh, for, I think probably from the time I was about maybe four or five till eight to nine, right in there. So I lived in Colorado City, and the rest of my my older brothers, and some of my younger sisters all lived in Salt Lake. So we had. We've kind of separated uh, our family out there, and so I, I went to first and second grade in Colorado City and got to know a lot of the people in Colorado City that are still there today. Made a lot of friends, first and second grade that are still my friends today. Was it, now were you guys part of the FLDS at that time, or was was that yeah? Kind of- um, Technically, you know, the the FLDS or the actual organization of the FLDS wasn't in existence at that time. In fact, we were actually, uh, it was not even an organized group like Incorporated. We just, you know, they called us the, the, the group or the work or whatever the name was. We actually wasn't an actual uh, incorporated entity of any sort. And But we were all part of that great big group with Leroy Johnson and and that uh, whole council uh, of men before that division that happened in the 80s. And so that was the group that I grew up in. My dad was a convert uh, in the 1950s uh, as a result from the from the Truth magazine that uh, Joseph Musser had put out. And uh, in the early 50s, why he came, uh, he came into uh, what we call the work and uh, wasn't married started his family and several of his brothers and sisters uh, came also. My grandpa, they grew up in Hiram, Utah, uh, and of course the Jessups were up in Hiram, and 
so my grandpa, well, they were actually in Millville, but uh, it was right next to Hiram. My grandpa was the sheriff up there in Millville and Hiram area, and so he knew all the Jessups. Mm. And he knew they were all kind of polygamous people. Uh, but he was he was well in the church. So when my dad kind of got associated with the uh, fundamentalist people, my grandpa just was like, don't get too associated with those people, man. They'll gather up a couple little knickknacks from Short Creek and marry them to you. <laughs> <laughs> and to him, a knickknack was a was an old horse that, that just, you know, right. just wasn't up to much. And so he, he had kind of this little warning there and, and after some time, my dad ended out bringing him to church one day. Why? And he just says it was like an old family reunion. All those old friends he knew from Millville and up in the Hiram area were all, you know, he says it was just like an old reunion for them. And so my grandpa eventually did come around and ended out marrying two or three of those gals from Short Creek. Nice. <laughs> nice. Was so, it? Yeah. So, so did, did you ever meet? Leroy Johnson? Yes. Yes. What, what was he like? Because I've read some things on him, and he seems like a man who really loved his people. He did. He was he was very he was a very kind uh uh man, very soft spoken. He wasn't a long speaker, I remember as a kid. I loved it because he would give short sermons. Right. But oftentimes he would tell stories and things that you could relate to, inspiring stories. Um, but there was a there was a a feeling around him, and perhaps it was that we were we were taught to respect him. I mean, he was somebody really important. Perhaps that was some of the reason why uh, that I thought very highly of him. But in all my interaction, or, and and again, I was I think I was twenty years old when he passed away. So so I was I was young for those some of those five six seven years that I remember him. Uh, speaking in in church and and just occasionally you know visiting you know him you know not formal vases i don't want to put over any idea that i was like a bosom friend with him at all he was he i knew who he was and had obviously shaken hands and talked with him briefly at times i got you but i but i liked him i liked him a lot i thought he was a he was a good man what was ruling jeff's like a little far more austere and a really uh i mean those that knew him intimately says he was a lot kind more kind but he was the kind of man a little bit no nonsense kind of a man that uh, you didn't uh you know he would tell you what he thought real bluntly and and uh um he was he tended to be a, a more of a scriptorian a lot of his sermons and things were more He'd lean real heavy and read lots of scripture, which made me fall asleep. Right. As a as a kid, I I just didn't get that, and I liked storytellers. I wanted people that, you know, would tell stories, but I didn't. Uh, I knew him probably about as much as I knew Leroy Johnson. Okay. Uh, even though he lived longer, I just was not in those places that circle where I associated him with him, like perhaps some of my friends my friends did i got you and did you ever have any interactions with warren yes um yeah i actually did uh warren was my school teacher from the uh third well from fourth grade to eighth grade uh and uh he taught us 
math and uh, and history, but priesthood history. You might say not not world history, right? And uh, it was priesthood history and um, very interesting man. I I with with the, all the ways that that things has gone these last 15, 20 years or, or more. Uh, it's it's very interesting to to see the man that he became. When I knew him at school, I actually liked him. A lot of people, you know, didn't. He was a little fanatical and a little bit eccentric, but I kind of liked him. He was he was a kind of a tall uh, figure to a kid, and uh, had a certain charisma that attracted me to to him and but I really he he probably helped give me a foundation in the gospel at a certain age probably as good or better than my parents even did Mm -hmm. he was very uh he would we went into priesthood history and it was it was really one of the classes I enjoyed the most we would talk about uh I say world history but it was it was like biblical history Mm mm-hmm and uh, he went into that, a lot of priesthood ideas and doctrines. And like I say, he was, what I, what I mean by a little bit fanatical is just, here's a little example. We had, he had a, like what he called the priesthood history notebook. And uh, they had a lot of the things that we would study out of that. Well, in the beginning of that priesthood history notebook was four handwritten sheets of paper. So he'd make us hand write out these four sheets of paper that had to do with priesthood quotes and different things and he we would have to write those things out by hand and all four by off memory and Mm. if we missed even one comma one period the whole thing was failed and he would have us do this several times through the year and so I would remember those papers and at one time I asked him, because I was a why person, always a why person. Sure. Why are we doing this? And uh, and lazy, that comes from a little bit of laziness, because I can know why we're doing this if I'm going to put forth energy and effort. I'm this. right there with you. And uh, But anyway, so I'd ask him, I'd just say, yeah, we called him Mr. Jeffs. But I'd say, Mr. Jeffs, why? Why are you making us do this like this? This just seems so bizarre. And he would just, and he would say, someday you're going to be tested on this stuff and you're going to need to know it by heart. And so I thought, oh, okay, good enough for me. And so we would remember, you know, we had like the heads of dispensations. We had some priesthood quotes. We had a few uh, quotes from, uh, for one from the 1880 Revelation, one from the teachings of the prophet Joseph. And so you'd have to memorize all these quotes, every comma, every period and everything. And, uh, and interesting enough, halfway through my eighth grade year, he left school for two weeks. No explanation, just brought a substitute in, said, um, this year, new teacher for till I come back. And nobody knew where he went. And after a couple of weeks, he came back. And he was a different person. He's always had that little fanaticism, but this time it was full blown weird. He talked weird. He talked in that same voice. If you've ever heard him, yeah, you know it's it's a it's a real weird, slow, almost a mesmerizing, right, hypnotic voice. And and he talked weird, and he would say things he, uh, and and he 
the first things he did, he says, everybody pull out your priesthood history notebooks, and we all did. He says, take those four sheets in the front of the book and rip them out of your book. And so we all ripped them out of our books. He says, pass them forward to the front of the class. And we all did. And he loved to, another weird thing about him, he loved to test you. He was always putting in these little tests. And so I thought, oh, it's a test. And so we got, he got all those papers and he leaned over the side of the desk and he dropped them in the garbage can. And he goes, he goes, they're not true. And I kind of was, I was at the back of the room and I was Whoa. leaning, I was leaning my chair against the wall and I, I was smiling. I thought, well, pass that test, you know, because they were all upstairs. They were in my head. Right. And, uh, and so I thought, oh, this is the test he was talking about. I didn't realize that, that it was going a different direction at that point. Yeah. So everything. Did you know what had happened to him? Why he was I, gone that two weeks? I didn't. I have. I have since heard. I have since heard uh, people say that that he got called into account for some things that you know were happening with him. That you know, I hate to speculate whether whether these were some of the things early on, but. But uh, he kind of got called into account and uh, and kind of like, boom, you better get your act together. Now, whether that's the case, he we, we never heard. I just, I'd heard that years later from somebody that had, had kind of stayed with that group of people. And, and they told me, you know, you know why he left. And, and I said, no, I didn't. So, but it makes a little bit of sense because he was really, really, I mean, he wouldn't even hardly crack a smile after that. I mean, he was all business, and he was, he was, he was going to get us all uh, going some direction, and uh, and so that was my last of you. Man, we only went to the eighth grade at, at in that school, and so that was the last six months of my of my eighth grade year. Let me let me ask you this: when he tosses those papers into the trash and says they're not true. Was he saying, did he have like a crisis of faith that the gospel wasn't true, that the history wasn't true? What did, did you ever get a sense of what oh, he yeah. meant by it's not true? Yeah, because because it was every single morning after that in school for the next six months, this new doctrine was, was coming out and it was the prophet. We'd never, oh. see, we never grew up with, I never even heard a term, the prophet, a prophet. I mean, if you said the prophet, it was the prophet Joseph Smith. Right. He was the prophet, and there was no other prophet uh, of this dispensation. So, but we grew up with this this idea of the priesthood council. I got you. And so, uh, and there was, you know, there was the president of the priesthood <coughs> council, but they were all they were all this quorum of body that was in charge, and then all of a sudden we were hearing about the prophet or our holy prophet, that kind of stuff. Our, oh. If our holy prophet, and, and I'm just thinking, why is he talking this way? Cause he, and he would say these real fanatical things, like in his, in his voice he'd say, you know, if the holy prophet told me to kill somebody, I would do it and not even think about it. If he told oh, me geez. to jump off a cliff, I would jump. And I remember thinking, you're an idiot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And, uh, but that's, and so, but I thought, I still didn't know if this was kind of a test. Right. We're just being tested. And so, so I got a hold of him 
after school one time and I just and I basically I just said what is up with all of this and he just says he just says we have been received new light and this is a new way to go we this is he he called Uncle Roy is our prophet and you know he is God's mouthpiece and we we listen to him and nobody else and all this kind of weird stuff and I was just like well what about this other stuff that we threw away and he just says that's he just says some of that some of that's not bad but he says but primarily there are things in that that are just not true and it, and it really doesn't matter cuz it's about the holy prophet now and i just said so what am i supposed to do with all this stuff that you put in my head and he just says well just discard it and i says you're kind of a cruel man I said, you pounded that into my head so hard, I'll never get it out, ever. And, you know, he kind of shrugged his shoulders. Well, that's kind of your problem. So does this, do you think this is something that comes from, from Leroy Johnson? Or do you think that this is something that comes from maybe Ruin? And Ruin understands he's about to consolidate power after Leroy passes? Because this seems out of step with what I've read about Johnson. I'm not yes. saying that it's not possible, but it doesn't seem like it holds water with who he was. Do you get a feeling yeah. for for what happened there? It certainly uh, it certainly wasn't consistent with the way he talked early on in in his sermons and everything that I ever heard him say. He got sick the last seven years of his life. He got sick, and. You know, this is probably a, a source of a lot of uh, speculation on people, and probably even some some real tender feelings with with people uh, at this point. But a doctrine tended to change, and why it changed, I don't know. I have observed, I've observed when men do get older in their late, and he was he was old at this time. He almost lived lived to be almost a hundred, and so this would have been he would have been in his 90s and he was getting a you know a shot this is some speculation on on the effects of this but he he told my dad he says says i get a shot of demerol in my stomach twice a day and have for years now and he says i look like a screen door uh and you're, you're talking about a hallucinogenic drug right and and i personally think he did pretty darn well for a guy getting that kind of medication now i've talked with a lot of my friends that were still there that have since pulled out of the flds that would argue with me and say oh he was the same man he always was he never changed but you can see a distinct change in his doctrine uh i think there was a lot of men around him that started pumping him full of stories and that was a little bit evident because of my dad was pretty close to him and my dad would tell me he just says you know I went and seen him and he says he'd tell me some strange things and he says and I'd say he'd just say I'd say well you know that's not true and he'd say well that's what they tell me things like that and so it seemed like there was a there was a, a quite an effort to uh at least suggest some things to his mind and perhaps he perhaps that swayed him to in a measure along those lines but i think he always maintained from what i could see a goodness about him 
and a uh, a very uh, a humbleness and perhaps a uh, he really did care even to the very end a, a genuine care for the people he was a very good father figure that the people felt really comfortable with well, and during this time under under Johnson's administration if you will are they practicing things like placement marriage are they doing those sorts of things was that a common practice yeah, that was a that was a real common practice, uh, and you know it 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 started early on before my time. So it was kind of one of those practices that you grew up that with. I grew up with and never really questioned. You know, and you know this is might be a little revealing, but until I got to old enough to recognize girls, and then it became a real fear, because you know you you're not sure what. Right. It's coming down the road for you, and uh, and I was really fearful about some of those things because I'd watched a lot of people, uh, just kind of get girls just get put places and boys not even knowing who they were going to marry till till ten minutes before they got married and they get stood up and say yeah here so and so so and so and ten minutes later they're married and that was a little terrifying for me I, I got a I can only that. imagine. And so, but, so that placement, I, again, my, this is again, my speculation, and I got to get a little disclaimer even about part of this interview. I want to be careful because a lot of these things are my perspective, and I want to make sure people understand this isn't, I'm not speaking as an, uh, any kind of an authority sure. on, on things. This is my perspective and some of my history that I remembered. So some of it might be a little skewed according to what I saw. But but the placement thing, um, as I grew older and started to see things, I think that it was a program that was introduced to try to stop another problem, which, which was dirty, 10, 10 dirty. 12 men yeah. all getting revelations over one girl. And then it's like, then how do you deal with that? And so right. it got to the point where I think that they they started this program and it morphed into a doctrine and even almost an eternal principle, if you will, that that you know it's tough to tough to find that. Uh, I mean, I believe in revelation marriage. Sure. And I believe even believe that that people can help. Yeah, I think a father has a lot of influence to help his daughter uh, in who she can marry. I mean, help her. You know, as I tell my own daughters, God didn't put me here to make your decisions, but He did put me here. To help guide you to yeah. the right decisions, and, and you know, and because you know, if there's a guy I'm going to have to beat up, you know, I got to know I can take him. Right. So, <laughs> so. You, you, no, I I agree with you. I think, look, I think if a woman goes to her religious leader and says, "I'm ready to get married, but I'm drawing a blank on who I should marry," and she kind of says, will you help me? I think he it's incumbent that he helps her. Right. Now, I think that that woman's agency needs to be respected above all else. I think that if she has an idea of who she'd like to marry and she's got the backing of her, her family, her dad, I, I tend to be a little bit like, and, and everyone's got their own revelation on it, I tend to, to err on the side of let's let, people figure this out right because i think it's just safer in the long run now 
again, I'm not opposed because I was certainly protective over my daughters. Um, in fact, when, when she married her husband, who's a great guy, I love, I love Nathan to death, but I remember he came down and kind of talked to me and I have this big semi truck battery. I used to power up one of my pieces of equipment and, uh, I couldn't help playing with him. I said, you know what that'll do to a man's testicles? <laughs> <laughs> so, so no, yeah. I, I think we all have to be, have to be protective over our, our, our daughters. Um, but I also think their, their agency has to be respected there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. hundred percent. hundred percent. So, um, when Rulin takes over, does it get worse? It uh, at this time, see, we we broke away in about '84, and now Leroy Johnson passed away in in uh, November of '86. Okay, and so the last couple of years, uh, I was we were kind of really separated from that uh, from that main group, but we still was familiar with it. I had friends there, and it did seem like it started to take a turn even more there was more things that were said you know and primarily the things that affected me was you need to stop uh, associating with the apostates was things that were coming out of their group so my friends we had to cut ties my friends and and i didn't like that i had really good friends and they would they would come to me and just say hey i know we're friends but we're not supposed to talk to you and I'd just say, well, why? And they said, well, you're, I know it doesn't make sense, but it just would be easier this way. And I mm. had, so I had sisters, I had a couple of sisters that were over there, and they stopped talking to us. Ugh. And, uh, you know, and, and and so everything kind of pulled away. We You couldn't hardly get in any information from I got gotcha. you. From then. So you started to see, like it is when, when you... Uh, you don't really know what's going on. It's easy to believe every radical story that comes sure. out of a group. So, in fairness to them, I probably believed a lot of real weird stories that maybe some of those didn't happen. Right. But we had no way of finding out. Yeah, no, no way. way of knowing. At best, things went weird. Right. And uh, as as we saw subsequent to that, the way it eventually went. Yeah. So, you guys... When that first break-off happens, well, first off, before I go there, there's a couple of things about your story there that that really caught my attention. One was passing up those papers from other priesthood leaders and then trashing them. That, for anyone listening, that should be a red flag. If anyone tells you ever, don't worry about what the old guy said. That should be a red flag. Yeah. You should really take that to heart because something isn't right. If you if you're finding that your your new doctrine is conflicting with the old doctrine, you need to take a real hard look at that because that is super problematic. And it's almost it, 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 to me as you were telling the story about that, it was almost symbolic of like erasing your history. Right. Right. You know, we're, oh, yeah. You don't worry about this stuff. That's gone. That's over. You don't need to ever think about that again. It's all about this new program, whoever this is. Um, yep. So, so I think that's a, a huge takeaway, and I'm glad you shared that. So, when, when you make that split, 
and and you're obviously a kid at this time so is it something that you you have um a decision to make or is this something that your parents do for you well my my uh my dad had decided he wasn't going down that road and so we we understood as a family and we there were several families that all had had kind of taken this stand really uh they were really trying to just stay going down the same way we had always gone right but it was when this thing kind of went sideways on us we just said look we're just my dad said this we're just not going down this road now in one sense it was easy easier to go with my dad but in another sense it was very difficult to walk away from some of those friends cuz at 14 years old that's your whole world your friends are more important than your parents oh yeah <laughs> you oh know? yeah and so um it was hard for me to walk away from those friends and uh and and just not have anything to do with them cuz i would keep i'd want to keep associating with them right but, but they're the ones kind of telling me, look, we, we're not supposed to talk to you. We're going to get in trouble if we do. Mm-hmm. And so that it kind of, it just became really awkward at the time. And I wasn't nearly as, uh, how should I say, uh, willing to just push the envelope a little bit with people like right. I am today. I, you know, I wouldn't put up with that today. I'd just go right up and go talk to them. I don't care. Right. But back then I was like, oh, this is awkward. I don't know what to do. And so I just, I just you know avoid it as much as i could but i didn't like it i i did not like it it didn't feel good to me well it's such a radical departure from what what and and in full disclosure i just wrapped up a part two of uh an interview with michael ness who did a bunch of historical Mm -hmm. work on musser yeah and Musser and those those early brethren, right when when fundamentalism is starting to take its take shape of what it would be, it was all done by council, right? Right. There wasn't just one guy. Now, obviously, natural leaders kind of rise, but it, it was it was structured that there was a council there. So the fact that it, it's all very I shouldn't say symbolic, but but you can start seeing where things start getting off course a little bit when. When this group that Musser and uh, John Y. Barlow had set up, and and it was a council, right, and, right. It, and it was it was meant to to guard against this kind of tyranny, and and when when those start going out the window, and you start seeing our holy prophet and blah blah blah, things start taking on a different right different shape and 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 whatnot. So when 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 that sh- break initially happens, it, at that point is what would. And and I mean no disrespect by saying this, so if you don't like me using this name, I can certainly switch. The Nielsen Nailers, were they part of Centennial Park at that time? Because that split would, would give birth to Centennial Park. Am I correct? Right. Yes, that, that's correct. Yes, we were all, uh, all of us were all part of, of this whole body. We They sometimes referred to it as Second Ward. Right. But, but uh, it was only just to, to make a distinction like who was who. And so yes, there was a there was a, a fairly large group in Salt Lake that separated, and of course, uh, not as big of a group down in Colorado City that separated. And eventually, uh, by eighty five eighty six, had bought some property that is referred to now Centennial Park, kind of across the highway from Colorado City. And so yes, we were all we were part of that group, and uh, and in that council, that council separate uh, kind of split down the middle 
there was a uh, there was a couple of the older men that had passed away during kind of during the division, but when it when the division kind of became final, uh, Leroy Johnson and Ruland Jeff separated from Marion Hammond and, and Alma Timpson. Okay, and so that kind of solidified that that uh, two different two different camps, if you will. And we went we went with this camp with Marion Hammond and and Alma Timpson, and. Uh, and it was only a couple of years after that why that uh, that uh, Marion Hammond passed away, and so and that's when we started uh, working on you know Centennial Park and building a community out there. It's a beautiful community that, that that's out there for sure. Um, at what point do do the do the Nielsen Nailers begin to take shape themselves? Well, that uh, so after we moved uh, to Centennial Park, the uh, there was still people in Salt Lake, of course, but a lot of there's kind of a a little bit of a push to move people down uh, to Centennial Park. Here you we're getting toward the end of the century. You know, we're in the the eighties, mm-hmm. and there was this real push. You know, the end of the world's coming by the year two thousand. We got to have this. We got to be in a place where we're pretty solid, and for a lot of these destructive elements and these, the world's going to be destroyed type thing. And so there was a real push to move down into Centennial Park. And so my dad didn't fully move, but he did build a house down there. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and I I ended up moving there a year or so after I was married. Uh, and lived down there for about five and a half years. And so the community started to to kind of really solidify into a community. Um, some changes, some some changes begin to happen. This is where it probably gets a little dicey and, and, and this is where probably other people would tell many different stories. And like most divisions, some of the biggest damage that gets done, as I see it now in retrospect, is a lot of misunderstandings. Yeah, and uh, I think that I think that people's feelings get hurt. There's there's jockeying for positions. There's authority. There's doctrinal understandings. There's whole family lines of of the way things go, and then pretty soon those things start start getting shaken, and people start. Uh, it, it it's a hotbed sure. for people and. And with in fundamentalism, you get two choices: right. you adjust or divide. Right. Yeah. And there's no, there's really no way. Like in the modern in the LDS Church, there's ways to call people into to account. Do you have a, a trial, a high council? There's a way. There's a way to deal with problems. Uh, by and large, you can you can deal with a lot of the little problems that come up. Sure. We have no way to deal with problems. Right. And so. Doctrine gets starts to get preached, or this gets said, and there's really no way to deal with it but just saying, you know what, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. I'm not right going down this road, and and so you end up having another division, and and primarily, you know, there's a lot of as as these things go, there's a lot of little nuances and things about why why these things happen, and and that's probably something that I. You know, probably take somebody a lot smarter than me to ever figure out how all that happened. Well, 
and, and here's the thing. Some of that is always lost to history. Yeah. Right? Because even though, you know, we're supposed to keep journals, sometimes we're not even as forthright in our journals as what, what we'd hoped we'd be. Right. I, I know I keep journals that I tell my kids, you don't get to read this till I'm dead. You just don't. Yeah. Either there's stuff in there that that um, is my own thought process that I want you to retrace, but now's not the time. Yeah. So um, some of that, I think, is just going to be lost to history. How much of it was truly doctrinal stuff? How much of it was personality things? Those are all things that I think are usually and rather than or, right? Right. Uh, there could be be both within within these kinds of things before yeah. before we you, you get to the end so during this time because i can't imagine the upheaval that you saw because you see the the division of the flds to to centennial park or the second ward and then you see this other division which results now in uh in in the nielsen nailers does this ever shake you to the core? I mean, does this ever like make you question this whole fundamentalist thing at all? Oh yeah, absolutely, Ab- absolutely. And and that was one that that was was several years because because with that shakeup, it kind of took us down a completely different direction that was we weren't accustomed to uh, based upon our history. Uh, in other words, we had we had dealt with a a priesthood council that were kind of considered like, you know, we, we answer straight to God, not to the people when, and, uh, this is, this is, uh, you know, we're in charge basically. We not, and I hate to use the word dictatorship, but it was, it was a benevolent dictatorship, if you will. Right. You know, and, uh, and, and that was part of the teachings that, that we had. And, um, and so, when you start to stray from this, when you start to see men get old and things change and, and you start to watch that people get close close into these inner circles with these individuals and then pretty soon the program starts to change and you start to see this, this can be problematic and yet it was the way it was when I was growing up. It was just like it was God's truth. And I since have I since as as I read history, I start to realize that the whole fundamentalist society of people has been an an evolving program from the time of Lauren Woolley to our current day. Right. Uh, and you've got many different factions that will hang on to things that Lauren Woolley said or John Woolley said, and then and then there's another faction that will hang on to things that Joseph Musser said, and. And every one of these different myths, these these uh, special special teachings that got had, uh, you see you see this element of people. It's almost like a religion starts to get created with right. all the secret doctrines that people have, and uh, and you you find out this this whole these it's almost just fractures into many different groups of people. You have the main big groups, but then you've got even small families that, that pulled away into did and did their their own little thing because kind of went independent. Yeah, yeah, just you know, but they would they would create like a almost a family group. Like it was just strictly their family. 
and you'd get two or three of those going out there and, and that gets really really uh, problematic also because you know who are those people are going to marry right and uh, and so you you get you get a lot of those there's just a lot of dynamics and I just think don't think anybody really thought that it would go on this long right and so it was some real short-term thinking right what sustained you through that right because again you're it sounds like your whole world got shattered not once but twice what sustains you through that? Because at some level, I imagine, at least for me, and, and this is going to point back to my own personal flaws and that I'm I'm probably a little lazier than what I'd like to be. I'd love just to sit on the couch and eat Doritos and play fantasy football. That's what I, you know, yeah. left to my own devices, that's what I do. Yeah. Um, but I know for me and seeing something like that, the LDS church would start to look a little appealing, right? Because at least there's stability there. Yeah. So what sustains you and, and sustains your faith through these two just earth-shattering events? Um, you know, that's a little bit of a, you know, your complex question because I'm, you're, I'm going through, I'm, I'm going through the years, those, those real formidable years, the 14, from 14 up to 21, 22, and I was married at 20, so there's some real uh, years uh, that at one time, yes, I actually did. I went over to the local ward there to the bishop and I had a talk with him because I was, I was curious. I was just, I liked the social programs. Mm-hmm. We had, we had very little social programs and I wanted to play football for Granite High School so bad. My teeth ached. I just, I wanted to play football and, uh, but we were, we were not a part of the world, right. so to speak, and my dad said, "No, no football. We're not. You're not going to high school." And I just wanted so bad to be a part of something like that. And so I was looking for a way out, if I could. But, but I, uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't go that direction. I think primarily because there was something deep inside that I, I absolutely believed, mm-hmm. and I want to say it was, it was Joseph Smith, because. Because I think that was the rock, the, f- the fundamental testimony that I got uh, early, early on uh, when I was 11 years old. I mean, it was just burned in me. And I just was like, I know that this man was a prophet of God. But along with that, I got a testimony of the fundamentalist Joseph Smith, not right. the LDS Joseph Smith, if that right. makes sense. No, that makes perfect I, sense. I just... Uh, uh, but it did because I and so I never wanted to leave. I, I, I was so I was so absolutely convinced and believed with because of that experience that I had that Joseph Smith was who he claimed to be, that it was probably a, an anchor to me okay. more than almost anything else. I wanted more than anything to meet him one day. And perhaps that shaped my thinking in the sense that I didn't want to meet him one day and have him say, you gave up the very thing I lived and died for. Right. And I was just like, I do never want to be in that place where, where, where I got to meet him and, and not say, look, I, I wanted to fight the same fight you fought type thing. If that makes sense. No, I, that makes perfect and at sense. A young, at a young age, I didn't have a real good foundation and understanding of the gospel. It was growing but it was, I think it was probably Joseph Smith 
and that that probably sustained me through through some of those real rough times. I just I just wanted to see him. Right. Well, I look. I don't think that's, and I think there's wisdom there, Stephen. I think that um, so many people when when because that's the problem that that I think we're seeing in Mormonism right now, LDS even fundamentalism a little bit, less so in fundamentalism because we tend to hold a little more um, uh, tenaciously to to history. But a, a lot of folks, especially if they're in the mainstream or they've never heard of this stuff before, there definitely is, in my estimation right now, there's, there's three Joseph Smiths that get talked about. There is the LDS version of Joseph Smith. There's a fundamentalist version of Joseph Smith. And then there's the Doctrine of Christ movement, Joseph Smith. <laughs> and they're three distinct people. Yeah. Right. Now, I can make the case all day long based on history, based on good scholarship that I believe Joseph Smith is closer to the the Joseph Smith most fundamentalists have come to know and realize. In the LDS church what you have is you have an LDS uh, Joseph Smith that is very um kind of whitewashed a little bit i want to say and by whitewashed i mean not necessarily covering up any of his flaws or anything but whitewashed in the sense of taking away all the controversial teachings that were problematic to to move the lds church into the 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 20th century and and to see what it became so it's it's a little more pastel of a joseph smith and then the doctrine of christ is just they're they're way off base I think I've detailed that on here enough, yeah. but but you, there's wisdom there in the sense of Joseph Smith, whether we like it or not, is really the litmus test in a lot of ways for for fundamentalism and certainly for Mormonism as a whole, because it hangs on his work, right? Right. It 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 those those truths that he revealed become the the bedrock and the anchor of what mormonism is and so which joseph smith you 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 come to recognize as being historically accurate and being the true joseph smith and and i want to make it clear that i don't think you come to this answer strictly by scholarship alone right you have to have a witness of the spirit but if you can anchor it to the savior and you can anchor it to those teachings that joseph really taught I think you can weather almost any storm. And and I'm always interested in those faith crisis moments because I think we all have them. Right. We all have them. And, and seeing somebody who successfully navigated those and came out on the other side with testimony intact, if not stronger, is, is worth exploring. So I, I, I appreciate that. So as, as the Nielsen Nailers begin... Is there a central gathering spot? I mean, what, what's the idea as as the new yeah. group begins to take shape? Are, are are you know are they saying okay, well, let's go south of the highway now a little bit or something like that? What 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 are some of the talk? Well, we we there wasn't primarily the probably the larger group of of the Nielsen Naders at, at that time were probably still in Salt Lake. Okay. Even though some of us had moved down to Centennial Park, but there was kind of a separation there. And, uh, you know, we had a small group of people in Centennial Park that was meeting, and it became very awkward, as you can imagine, when you've got 25, 30 people meeting and 
just quarter mile down the street there's three four five hundred are meeting right and it's really you know you you know i i you know i i think i get a little bit of the idea of what it feels like to be a black kid in a white neighborhood sure (laughs) (laughs) sure yeah sure so so anyway you uh you just it just starts to feel a little really awkward Mm -hmm. and yet a lot of these people, and I got to say this, a lot of these people in Centennial Park were just absolutely dear friends. They still are to this day. We get together and and uh, we talk, and and we're more we're both more secure with maybe where we're at. We even talk about some of our differences at times, when, and there's not quite so much the animosity that's that was there at one time. And so, I we I can go down there. I can visit. I can see people and uh and they're and they really are there's some really dear friends uh to me there's there's obviously you know i was gifted with a, a caustic tongue which got me into a lot of trouble at times in the middle of those i feel kind like. of those heated heated moments where a lot of things get said uh and that you probably would probably take back today if you if you had the chance but but I really have no no ill will or animosity uh, to those people. Where primarily there was, as I see it today, there was a, a different understanding of doctrine, uh, and perhaps a different pathway that just didn't feel like it was consistent with the pathway that I wanted to go down. Absolutely. Well, and I want to make clear this isn't. So you're the first in a series I'm doing on. Trying to get somebody on from all the branches yeah. of fundamentalism because I feel like it's important that that we learn about each other so we know where we all come from, and hopefully that fosters some understanding. So in no way is this episode or any of the episodes I'm going to be doing here meant to kind of, and pardon the expression, crap on another church. That's right. not it. I'm genuinely curious, and then too, I feel like I feel like we're in a strange spot now within Mormonism. Where we kind of cannibalize each other, right? The LDS church cannibalizes, we cannibalize, and, and others. And, and it's just infighting. And the whole time we're doing that, the real enemy's at the door kicking it down. Oh, yeah. And so, it, to a certain extent, I'm like, okay, you know, we can have our theological minor differences later. And, and for the most part, they are minor. Um, th- there are some important things, but by and large, I think they're minor. Let's work together right now to... The, the house is on fire. Let's put out the fire, and then we can talk about who's taking which room. Right. Yeah. yeah and, 100%. And so I, I, I'm i glad you brought that up because I wanted to, to get that out of the way. During this time, what what are you doing? Are you just working up in northern Utah with, with family? Well, I, or? I actually stayed down after, our, after we kind of started to divide, uh, and some of the people had moved away from Centennial Park. I stayed there. Um, I stayed there for a few years. Some of the people that had separated there actually ended up moving straight to Missouri and okay. starting, and that's kind of when that community kind of got started out there. Um, and uh, and then some of us ended up moving back to Salt Lake. And we were very fractured and very small, small group of people at this time. It was almost down to a few families uh, and a few few onesie twosies that were sympathetic to what was going on um so we uh so we moved to salt lake and my dad my dad had been uh set apart he was he was one of the leaders 
but he'd also been set up after this time as a bishop. So he was he was uh, taking care of a lot of the uh, the bishop duties and those kind of responsibilities down there. And so when we separated, why him and Frank Nader Sr. was, uh, and he was he was one of the men called into that council later on after Alma Timpson. Uh, Alma, you know, so he was just like the last man of that council before before their current council that they have in Centennial Park now. There's John Timpson and Claude Colley and and some of those men that were that kind of oversee the Centennial Park group today. And so Frank Nader was was called and and prior to that, and uh, you know there's a lot of you know a lot of issues and it's probably where where some of that division actually happened was was you know was right in the 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 calling and the and the ordination of that new council maybe not altogether different than the this kind of situation that happened with Joseph Musser and Rulin Allred and. And those early men that I grew up with, right. there was a new council, and I mean, there was ruling Allred. There was, there was, the old the old council didn't agree with the new, you know, type thing, and it caused some real issues. I think it. I hate to, I hate to say, boy, I really understand this because I'm still trying to get my head around how all this stuff happens psychologically. So I have tried to reserve some certain judgments, and tried to just say, mm, that was interesting that happened. Uh, but anyway, to to continue on with the story, Frank Nader, he he was just like we. I'm not I'm not going down that road uh, with this whole new deal. To him, it was and so and my dad kind of took a stand with him and and so that's kind of how we kind of got termed the Nielsen and Nader group. My dad was the one that actually set up the legal organization okay. of the Church of Jesus Christ. and the We call it the Church and Kingdom of God. The Church and Kingdom Church, of God. Yeah, okay. and so that's kind of sh- the short name. And so he took that entity. Uh, it, he had set done all the legwork and the legal work and everything. And and uh, and so he just took that organization with him and that that literally became our organization as far as a legal, a legal entity was concerned. And we came to Salt Lake, and uh, eventually most everybody moved away that was still sympathetic to that from Centennial Park and, and so forth. And then, and this, so this would have been in the early 90s. Okay. And, uh, and so over a period of time, why are, you know, we've grown, uh, we've grown, it was... Uh, till in to about the year two thousand five, we reconnected with some of the FLDS people that had had okay. a separation at the time. Be just shortly before Rulin all I mean before Rulin Jeffs uh, passed away, and Warren was really, really hacking off everybody that uh, right. that was any kind of a threat. Well, Winston Blackmore was part of that and had a fair amount uh following and so they kind of cut him off up in canada and i was gonna say they went to canada right? yeah on the heat that's where they were from okay. and and so he they lived up there they had a big community up there some in idaho and then salt lake and in colorado city but they had pretty much pulled everybody down into colorado city except the canadians primarily because the the border wouldn't allow it them to migrate down here so they kept that community up there 
Well, he got cut off, and that took about half the community with him, and the other half stayed loyal to Warren and Ruland Jeffs. And so in about 2005, he reached out to my dad. By this time, I, Frank Nader had passed away, and my dad was in, pretty much in charge of, of everything. And Winston had reached out to my dad and wanted him to just come on up there and and just talk about the history and see if we had something in common and visit and so forth. And so my dad did. <clears throat> and so we, from that time on, we've actually been connected, you know, uh, with them in the sense that we go up there once a year and we'll do a conference. They'll come down and do a conference down here. But we kind of stay separate groups, if you will. It's a real strange dynamics of, of relationship because some of our children are even intermarried mm -hmm. and yet and yet Winston still kind of we didn't we didn't mesh leaderships if if that makes sense right but but the body of people kind but of But you granted reciprocity of quote priesthood yeah and authority right yeah exactly and and so and again in 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 all of that and I hate to make it sound like it was so cut and dry there's always the little factions sure. inside there that hey we're going too far or we're not far enough and all of that, but primarily the main body of people we've we've got along very good together, and uh, and a lot of our children. I mean, I think I've got three, four, five of my children that married, uh, several that married Winston's uh, sons and, and their daughters, and so we share grandkids, and and uh, so there's a a real a good working relationship sure. with the people up north. I to me, I I view almost all of our our own people because i'm not hung up nearly so much on authority as i used to be right right there's yeah. one true authority and that that you know if if god did nothing else he sure shook that out of me yeah yeah no that <laughs> so. i could see i could see that um you know i've never met anybody from the blackmore side of things but every time i hear winston talk because he he seems to be able to get on tv quite a bit because he yeah. has it a lot of knowledge about what happened down there in Colorado City. I'm always impressed. He seems like a great guy. I yeah. mean, seems like a, a really great guy. So, um, yeah, I don't know. If he's listening, reach out. I'd love to talk to you. But, uh, yeah, no, he seems like a great, great guy. Um, what was it like? So, you grew up primarily down south, Colorado City area. What's it like when you come up north, right, and you come into bustling Salt Lake? Oh, is it? Yeah, I I remember because see, I'd I'd moved like I said, I'd moved down there when I was a kid, and then I moved back up, and see, we didn't have a television down down there. I mean, the first time I ever remember seeing a television, we come to Salt Lake, and, and you know, the six million dollar man, you know, was playing. Now you remember that old movie? Lee Majors, yeah, Lee yeah, Majors and yep. stuff. And I mean, and I just I'm enthralled with the TV because we just never had one, and and the big city, and as a kid down down there i mean i i walk anywhere i just you know right. i wanted to go somewhere down to the creek bottoms and wherever i wanted to go and play and then i moved to the city and we had a small little lot right in the in the city surrounded it was just it was just it was by granite high school and it was just not a teeny tiny little lot where you we had a little basketball court in the backyard and that was our entertainment and i hated it i absolutely hated it and uh and being outspoken like I am I I would make these you know I will never no never raise my kids in a, in a play you know in a right. hellhole like this well god has a sense of humor 
Oh, many, does he? Many years later, I ended out raising some of my kids in that very house uh, that I was raised in. So he, 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 we get it. We he, get it coming he, around. He, he, he absolutely has a sense of humor. Yeah. I, yeah, okay. Full disclosure, I complain about Californians a lot. Where did I pluck Tanya from? California. California, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yep, no, it's it's uh, it, it's interesting how he, he tends to be like it. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. What kind, of, what kind of experiences did you have with, like, church membership when when you moved down here? You shared a story earlier about working on L. Tom Perry's place, right? This was this was later on when I got married and and uh, uh, and was working. Uh, uh, you know, I just some of the the Mormon uh, experience. I mean, I, I actually grew up with a fair amount of good feelings toward. I mean, I we knew people in the church and and uh, my my dad uh, uh, my dad ran a water softener business and uh, you know a funny little story about that was he. Uh, he got a call and and to fix a water softener for somebody and it was just up on the east side and so he pulled in the driveway and there was this car there with a security officer mm. in there and he thought well that's strange and he pulled in started to get out and this guy gets out of the car and comes over what do you need and just then the front door of the house opens up and spencer kimball pops his head out there and just says come on in come you know i want this guy to fix my water softener and so my dad goes in there and works on his water softener and he stands right there with him just just chatting with him you know and and so finally my dad says so what's the what's the big black car out there in the driveway and your security and he just goes oh i don't know we've had some threats and you just never know when one of these weird polygamous people will will make their way in here (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) you know it's did, you, well, did your a, dad say anything? Yeah, that's a time when you be quiet. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, that's awesome. But uh, but yeah, had uh, uh, you know, and then uh, you know, I I ended up working in the water softener business, and that's where I had run into the church patriarch uh, uh, Eldridge G. Smith, and of course I was really green. I didn't understand the church and the way mm-hmm. the structure of the church. I didn't know there was the church patriarch. I just right. I, I didn't understand that that uh, that history very well and so I, I work on this guy's house, Smith, and worked on his water softener and everything when I get done, why he was he was a little bit flamboyant, I guess, and he signs this check and he hands it to me and he goes, You recognize that signature? And I was like Smith. Oh yeah, that's a pretty common name in the church, isn't it? You know, and then he goes, "That's Eldred G. Smith. I'm patriarch to the church." And I said, "Oh, that's neat. You're a patriarch in the church, huh?" Uh-oh. And uh, and then he informed me, I he was the patriarch, and and I start to realize that that Steve needs a little education about some things, and uh, and then he starts to. Uh, fill me in a little bit on stuff and and so I start quizzing oh yes you're Hiram Smith's great great grandson and so forth yeah you and so he takes me down there you want to see his clothing and and oh, so it was wow. really enjoyable to 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 uh get to know him a little bit I had to I had to leave I did what I had to do and the, but but then there was some problems so I had to go back on the job this time I came a little prepared because I found out who he was. Right. And so the, my boss, who was in the church at the time, says, ask him why he doesn't sit up with the general authorities anymore, why they removed him. Mm. 
He says, I think he's living plural marriage. And uh, and so and so when I got back there to his fixie softener, go back the second time to do some work on there, I asked him, I just says, so why don't you sit up there with the general authorities anymore? And he just kind of, he was a little sharp. He could get a little sharp with you and he goes, what do you know about it? Ooh. And I was just like, well, I just noticed that you don't sit up with the general authorities anymore. He goes, they think I'm going senile. And he says, and they're, they're doing away with the, with the position of church patriarch. Which they did. Which they did. And, and later end up reading that book, Lost Legacy, that's written by his son, Gary Smith. And helped me understand that whole history. But it was fun to get to know, to, at least in that short little moment, get to know him. He showed me some original paintings and Hiram and, and, and stuff. So we had that little interaction. And then, of course, later on, I, I uh, ended up uh, getting into the cabinetry business and, and uh, ended up working in L. Tom Perry's place. Before we go there, was there any indication that you ever saw that maybe... Eldon Smith was living plural marriage. You know, it was something, you know, I, yeah, well, I, I tell everybody I'm a recovering conspiratorialist. And so I believe lots of little weird stories every once in a while. Right. You know, and so I, somebody, they said that, but he made a little comment to me. He says, hey, I got another house across town that the water softener's not working Ooh. in. He just said, would you be able to go over there and, and fix that softener too? And I, I was, oh yeah, absolutely, I'll, I can do that. But he ended up, so one of the other guys from the company ended up going there, so I never got to follow that out. But some had suggested that, but... You never saw any evidence. I never saw anything, and there was probably more of the fundamentalist history that I really wanted to ask him about, but I didn't understand it at the time. But see, there was this. There was that old fundamentalist story that of Lauren Woolley, that that when Eldred Smith's father died. See, there was a it was a fifteen year gap. I, I want to say that Heber J. Grant right. passed that church patriarch authority to different men. Yep, he didn't want to pass it on to Eldred Smith, and uh, there was an old fundamentalist story that was. That was uh, that. Lauren Woolley says that they were holding that in trust till the rightful heir. That it could be given to the right. rightful heir, which would have been Eldred G. Smith, and uh, and so uh, later on, later on, you know, they they did eventually uh, pass that on to him. But I always wanted to ask him because there came a time when Lauren Woolley told those that early council of brethren. I passed that authority on to the rightful heir. Now, he didn't say it was Eldred G. Smith, but he just says, I've passed that authority now, held it in trust, and now I've passed it back on to the rightful heir. And I always wanted to ask him, you know, did Lauren Woolley ever come to you and claim something? Ooh. But I I didn't know that history, in, in, right. you know, or, or those stories. I hate to say it's history because it may just be in a story. Right. But I did want to... I, I would have loved to have asked him that question. I am fascinated with post-manifesto plural marriage within yeah. the LDS church because it's not a clean break. I mean, I had a gentleman on this podcast not too long ago that told the story and even gave names, and I went and fact-checked it, where 
um, David O. McKay was still sending people up to talk to other men about fundamentalism when men started asking about it, right? Plural marriage, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. So I, I find it's not a clean break, and there's a lot of winking and nodding going on from, yeah. from one side to the other. But So Tom L. L Tom Perry. So I, I was able to do a little bit of, you know, I didn't, really didn't know who this man was. I mean, because I just got a little job, and it said mm-hmm. Perry on the on the job order so I, I went up there and to measure up for some cabinets and figure out what I needed and and so forth. I had no idea who this this Perry man was that that I was gonna and I and he wasn't there. His wife Barbara was there and, and so I measured up what I needed to and then I needed to use the phone. So they let me into his office. Still didn't know who he was, but I sat down in his office desk there chair and kind of wheeled around and looked up at his bookcase and there's just a most fascinating set of books, all leather-bound editions of every Mormon book you could think of. And I was like, I was a book nut. So I just, I was fascinated by this. And so I I uh, looked at those books and I thought, wow, this is, a, this is just really something. You know, and then I turned my, de- my chair over to the desk and right there on the, on the desk was a, uh, was a paper and it was minutes of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles <laughs> meeting in the Salt Lake Temple. And I just, boy, my eyes got big as saucers. And I oh, was just I like, I was like, who the heck is this guy that he's got minutes to the Twelve Apostles meetings on his desk? And uh, anyway, but then I end up finding it was L. Tom Perry. And 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 subsequently there, I, I actually met him. He was very kind, very very much a gentleman in every sense of the word very respectful to his wife, to me, uh, thought, a, thought a lot of, of him in the two or three weeks that I worked in his house. And even to the point where he, uh, when he had to go out of town, he, he had to be the keys to his apartment and trusted me to just, you know, whatever you need, just, just lock it up and, and I'll get the key from you when you're done. He completely trusted me uh, in this house. And at that time he knew, he knew I was, I was a plague kid, you know, and that was, that really said a lot to me about him, about his character, about his character, that he was willing to just to trust somebody like that. He was very frugal. I didn't see any sort of strangeness about him, Hmm. uh, in that little bit that I knew him. So it was, it was fun to get to know, uh, people in the, in a little bit, some of the higher ups in the, in the Mormon church like that. That's awesome. So we, we've kind of covered up to this point kind of your background on, you know, what it was like growing up in, in down there in Colorado City in that area. And we've covered the splits and we've talked a little bit about even about your own personal testimony. I want to get into to now kind of um, the the inner I shouldn't say the inner workings, some of the some of the ways that. The Nielsen Nailers lived the gospel, so to speak, mm-hmm. right, okay. from, from a church standpoint. Um, you mentioned the Blackmores, and you mentioned Centennial Park, that you guys are are still kind of close, right, even though there's mm-hmm. there's a, a split there. How does it work being associated with those other fundamentalist groups? How, how do you navigate those differences? Yeah, that's that's really, it, it's, it is interesting, and, you know, as you can only imagine, there's, there does have to be a lot of uh, charity and and uh, really, for me, I guess the biggest thing I had to do is I had to come to a place where I just had to realize that I just don't know it all. 
Right. And, you know, that's painful. It is painful. <laughs> yeah. painful to, to a guy that, that perhaps thinks he does. But, uh, uh, and uh, so I had to say, you know, there's a lot of things I just don't understand. And even some of the history that perhaps has even been told to me a little bit biased um, illustration. I had a chance uh, one time to, uh, with my father-in-law, to go visit Owen Allred before he passed away. And uh, we were we were there, and they had five or six men there, and I didn't know who any of these men were. But we had a quite a long visit with him, and part of his part of his conversation with us, he really wanted to to get us our group to join up with their group. Kind of let's solve our differences. Let's uh, let's get together. And I just simply told him, well, whose who's version of the history are we going to tell then? And, uh, of course, we just it just never went anywhere. But after we got done with the meeting, where well, two of the men that took me home, they drove me back to my house, was Lemoyne uh, Jensen and Lynn Thompson, who would later become the next two leaders of right. this group. So as we were there, they started telling me some of the stories of of our group of people Ugh. and uh, some of the the just the nasty ugly stuff that uh, you know and well I had heard all the kind of the nasty ugly stories about them and uh, and when they finally got done with these things I I kind of said I said oh that's interesting I didn't realize you was old enough to remember that and of course then they they said oh whoa, 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 wait well we weren't we weren't around for that but that's what got told to us. And I said, and I got told a different set of stories. And I just said, so neither one of us were there. And neither one of us really know what happened. All we have is the stories that, and try to navigate through some of those things and try to make sense out of them. So I said, makes a lot of sense to me if maybe we would stop fighting each other and just maybe turn outward and start fighting the real enemy. Yeah. And, uh, of course, that's easy to say, but it's tough when it comes right down to who's right. Right. And uh, and these, these things uh, these things are very difficult. They're very difficult to, to navigate through. And, and when, you have, when you have a little bit more ability to align with people that, again, I think, anyway, when you, you don't have a real solid, established group of people that have created a certain doctrine that that has almost become their identity it's a yeah. lot easier to navigate through some of these things with with uh, you know the some of our friends up north with Winston and and some of those up north there people are willing to just say hey you know what we we don't know everything that happened and maybe it wasn't quite what we thought it was and maybe you guys weren't as bad as we remembered and maybe you know that kind of a thing, and so you you start to soften up on some of those things, and you start to look for the common, the common elements that you actually do have with each other, and and kind of just agree to disagree on parts that you just can't get past. You know, and, and and here's the other thing, and and this is the part that drives me nuts, and I like to call it the the Hatfield and McCoy syndrome, right? Mm. Because let's face it, none of us alive today witnessed the split the the two different councils that right. muster set up the one down south and the one up north here none of us were alive for that 
at what point do we stop inheriting other people's slights? And I'm going to say something here now that might be kind of pointed in a little way and, and may ruffle some feathers, but you knew what you were signing up for when you started listening. Um, <laughs> if we really believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not Adam's transgression, then maybe we should start extending some grace to some folks in different groups. Right. And understand they are not their ancestors. Even if you think that your ancestors were completely uh, um, innocent in the whole thing, which right. ten to one, I'm willing, you know, I'm willing to bet that your ancestor had someone on his shirt too. But let's just say he was completely spotless through this whole thing. They're different people now. Right, we're different people. Let's not thrust somebody else's transgression onto their kids or grandkids, because I don't see that fitting anywhere within this gospel narrative yeah. that Joseph revealed. Now, if if you know you keep your separate groups, that's great. We can hug that out. That's that's okay. There's nothing nothing there. But let's. I like what you said there. Let's let's just extend some grace and some charity, and work together where we can. Because, like you said. We're busy fighting amongst each other, and somebody else that's far worse is kicking down our door. Yeah, absolutely. And and if the only thing we can do is just be honest enough to just say, you know, maybe there's part of this history that I don't know about. Mm-hmm. Even if that's even if that's all that we can do to find some common ground to just say there is always two sides to every story, and maybe I shouldn't be quite so sure that I'm that I absolutely know my side of this story or the side that I've been told is indeed fact. And maybe maybe there's more to this story. And just opening that possibility, I know that terrifies some people because it puts them on very shaky ground. But for me, it actually put me on far more stable ground because I felt like it was more on, on a basis of truth. I didn't have to try to decide who I was supposed to hate, who I was supposed to associate with, who was apostate, who wasn't, who God loved, who he didn't love. And I could just say, you know what, I don't know. I don't know what God is doing, but I do know one thing. It's a hell of a lot bigger than us. Yes, exactly. Exactly. We tend to get, because we're humans, and I've discovered that humanity has a way of becoming myopic, right? It only sees what's in front of its face. That... We'll never see the 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 forest from the trees, so to speak, on this, right? Because of 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 mortality. However, that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to see the bigger picture. Um, and and sometimes it takes being shaken from your apathy and you know um, the status quo to help you realize that, right? And and I think that's prob probably part of the genius I see in in some of the conversation that we've had here and over the phone was I would dare to say it's, it's because of the split that you witnessed twice over that probably brought you to that at some point, you know, understanding how those things can, can manifest. Well, and, and one thing also that, that, that has been, uh, has really, has really changed my thinking, I guess, is when you, you live enough years, you start to see, the the results and the consequences of certain actions right and you start seeing how those things play out 
and uh, you know, and and I'll tell a little funny story that that got told to me, and and but this is just classic fundamentalists, and uh, there's this little story was was gal goes down to BYU there, and she's down the hallway, and she sees this little sign that says, you know, uh, cruise for a hundred bucks, and she's like, wow, I always wanted to take a cruise, so she steps inside that doorway, and and uh, she says, I cruise for a hundred bucks, and they say, yep, yep, we'll do that, and here's my hundred bucks, and well, they come behind her, they a little bat, whack her on the head, down she goes, they stick her on a little raft, and push her out behind the, the campus there on one of the little ponds, and she's just out floating out there. And she kind of comes to, and she's looking around. She sees somebody else out on a raft. And so she paddles over there to that other raft. And, and this other gal's out on this raft. And she's like, man, do you think they serve drinks on this cruise? And the gal goes, well, they didn't last year. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes we're just really slow learners. Right. And this is one of the things that, that I've watched in fundamentalism. That's, that's been very interesting to me. We keep going down the same road. Yeah. And then wonder why, why aren't we getting different results? And pretty, people will start to say, well, let's get different people in charge. It was, the, it was the people. There's people in the FLDS that believe the whole problem that happened down there was Warren Jeffs. And I go, no, no, he was, he was a part of it. He was a willing participant in a much bigger game that was being played. Right. Is one man a, a tyrant because many men are slaves? Or are many men slaves because one man's a tyrant? Which one is it? Right. And you're like, you know what? They're, working, they're working together. Yeah. In this story. Yeah. And, and you, so you watch that thing play out. You watch that thing play out and you start to ask some questions. And this is kind of what, where, where we kind of evolved to. You start seeing some of the problems that... That happened in the in the fundamentalist movements and you start asking a different set of questions like what could have been done different why why did we have to go down that room why do we have to divide every time there's a problem now I believe this is just my belief by studying the history a little bit I don't believe that they ever thought that it would go this long Mm-mm. no I mean Wilford Woodruff when he signed, even signed that manifesto, he didn't think it was going to go but a few years. You, you know, you are one hundred percent correct. And 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 if you if you were an old man and thought, okay, this is all going to be over in a few years, you would make a short term decision. Yep. Even if, it, but if if he had been told a hundred and she's a hundred and thirty, a uh, hundred thirty years is going to go by and it still won't be done. Wilford Woodruff might have made a different decision. Yep. Now, I don't know. But but Lauren Woolley said this thing wouldn't go beyond 1935. Right. Lauren Woolley didn't. I mean, Joseph Musser was absolutely convinced that this would be over by the 50s and 60s. And the man that I knew says we would be done and in the millennium by the year 2000. And here we are, 2023. And yeah. it's not done. And... And... We keep making these short-term decisions, as I see it, and I've got to qualify that, as I see it, we keep making these short-term decisions to try to buy us a little time till somebody a hell of a lot smarter than us can come and set these things straight and get us to back together again and stop fighting. Yep. Now, 
to me, it makes sense that you would start to address the problems and stop worrying about what's God's business, which I, I term if the one mighty and strong or whoever's coming to set stuff straight here, I say, well, that's God's business. That's my business is to do to take care of my work. So you start asking. For us, we started asking some questions saying, you know, how much of this stuff was really intended to be? And uh, really when Lauren Woolley first started, you know, trying to keep these things, they were primarily all in the church. I yes. mean, they were working in the church. And, and so when he tells them, you know what, don't pay me tithing. Don't go uh, start meetings. Don't colonize and, 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 and congregate together. Go to the church. Pay your tithing to the church. We're not creating a new church. We're keeping alive these certain principles that the church is giving up. And this thing evolved over yep. time. And well, pretty soon, Joseph Musser and John Y. Barlow and some of those men, they were in a different day. Yeah. And, and you know, and the church is using funds that they're paying to help persecute the fundamentalist people. That, that might be news to some, but, but uh, and they says, well, why are we paying tithing? Why don't we pay it to our own group of people to help our own poor and needy? Right. And so you see an evolution start to happen. But one fundamental problem, I think, has happened with the fundamentalist people from that day to this. A church evolved without the checks and balances that God set up in the Doctrine and Covenants about how a church should run. Right. And so how do you deal with any nut job that wants to stand up and say he's he's a neat leader. I mean, how do you deal with the Warren Jeffs? Because I think I think it spelled out very well that in the Doctrine and Covenants, people knew about Warren's problems years and years ago. And think of the disservice that it did to him and to the people later on. Yeah. Because just think, I mean, it, this could have been addressed early on and helped him and perhaps alleviated a heck of a lot of suffering and misery that the people have gone through. Now, I don't know what what that might would say, but I do know that when the Lord speaks in the Doctrine and Covenants and he lays out the way his church should operate, I think we ought to consider that before we just dismiss it and say, oh, that belongs to the church, we're the priesthood. Right. That doesn't apply to us. Right. No, I, I think you're right. There's so many things that you just said there that that kind of resonated with me. In that episode I just did with Musser, those two episodes, one of the things that I found fascinating was that you are correct. They all thought that it was going to be over quickly. Right. That that this manifesto thing was... And, and I firmly believe Wilford made sure that it was worded the way it was so that there was plenty of wiggle room. Um, but... Everybody thought it was short term. They thought this because even certain higher ups in the LDS church thought it would be short term. Right. Musser attends a meeting in the Salt Lake Temple as a practicing polygamist with the first counselor in the first presidency where they're asking, okay, what do we do here now? Because because we can't baptize our kids in the church. And they get the, 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 the um, counsel keep your records because right. in a few years we're going to bring you right back in 
and right. those records will be there. So they had no idea that this was going to go on as long as it did. Right. And what that requires us, and I love what you said there, Stephen, because I think it's absolutely 100% true. What that means now is that we have to start looking at um, what was said, when it was said, and what was the context of it. Because there's a lot of, of advice that was given that got taken as commandments from these early fundamentalist leaders when they're yeah. trying to hold it all together. Right. Right? And they're just like, oh, let's let, let's just do this because this will keep us all together for, for another few years. And those things now begin to become perpetuated down the line. Absolutely. And eventually became doctrine. And, and now we have to start getting to a point to where we look... At least for me, I know that that in this way of life for me and my kids and my family, I'm trying real hard to say, okay, how can I best set them up for continued success? Yeah, a hundred years from now, because look, do I think the Savior's coming quickly? I do. However, I'll, I also understand that the game of pinning the tail on the apocalypse hasn't gone well for just about anybody. Now. Right. So let's let's plan for the long term, and if it if you don't need it, great. But at least we've taken some proactive kind of of um, steps to ensure that not only can we continue as a people, but that maybe we can get stronger together. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that absolutely is what I believe that God is working uh, with. With, like I say. You know, one very profound scripture that I'd never considered, and this this helped break me away from this this really small uh, elitism that that each fundamentalist group is prone to have. I don't say they do, but is prone to have. Reading in in uh, uh, the Book of Mormon, First Nephi, where he talks about seeing the Church of the Lamb of God, and he says it was upon the face of the whole earth, yeah. and its holdings were small because of the whore of the earth right and and so forth but but i just that struck me like it never had before and i thought god has his church upon the face of the whole earth what makes you think that a few hundred people in one little location is the extent of god's work yeah and it started to open my eyes and i started to see it from a more of a spiritual perspective to say uh, god's church is is people that are looking and searching for the truth, even if they're not even a part of an organized group. Perhaps they've never even been baptized, but they're making that connection with him, and they want the truth. And I believe that's upon the face of the whole earth, and I believe that his church uh, has a responsibility yeah. to, to gather and to help, and to help, uh, how how would I say this, uh, to fight every spirit of division and discord. How, how would I say this, uh, to fight every spirit of division and discord. Right. You know, and, and instead of actually contributing to the discord by, by cutting off anybody that doesn't believe, and then by default, I guess I got to be the right one. Right, yeah. This, this doesn't go well either. No, no, it doesn't. It's all fascinating stuff. I and, and I think you're right. I think I think we're all out there so scattered that it, we we we've got to start reaching out across the table. Because and, and and you know and you're and you're you're right, you know, 
And I think that Satan knows this and and I'm gonna probably I'm gonna probably maybe get a few of my fundamentalist friends a little upset at me that maybe hold a little bit of a hard line on these things. But but you know, divided we fall and united we stand. Yeah. And that's terrifying for somebody to say, Well, you know, how do I how do I work with these people that are so doctrinally uh, skewed that I can't hardly even associate with them. I mean, they're just way off track. And yet, and yet, you know, if if the fundamentalist people would begin to to how should I say work together, they would become a formidable force that that would you know could terrify Satan. Yeah. But as long as he get he keeps us fighting each other, he don't have to do much. No. And uh, and this is this is this was a, a real eye opener to me just recently. This eye opener came to me, and I just thought. And, and again, some fundamentalist groups might might really take issue with me over this, but every fundamentalist group claims to be legitimate, or you know, or they wouldn't be doing it. Right. But who has God acknowledged? Right. Where has His voice come and says, "Look." I acknowledge these people are living my laws and keeping my commandments. They are my people. And so we're all in a pretty precarious situation because as far as I can tell, I haven't heard or seen where he's acknowledged and said, this people are doing it the way I want it done. Right. We're all kind of hobnobbing along trying to trying to do our best and and I and he and it it seems to me that God's very patient to work with us on a very slow process to help us start to see things we didn't see and perhaps overcome prejudices that we had, maybe ask different set of questions. But I, I see a, a, well, just like you and I sitting down here having this conversation today, you know, 20 years ago, five years ago, this would have been unheard of for me. Now, sure. 20 years ago, it just like, you don't do this. Right. among people that that uh, have a, a different background, so to speak. And I think just even that breaking down has started to help at least question things. Right, right. I Look, and I think that questioning things is a good thing. And I've said it before on this podcast, don't ever take what I say as gospel. You go do your own homework because right. I can be just as wrong as the next guy. But I will say this. Since there's been some things that's given me some encouragement, um, the fact that people are becoming more open about talking is right. a good thing. Questions get asked, ideas get passed around. Um, the other thing is, is that um, I'm sensing, at least in the 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 newer version, I shouldn't say version, the newer generation of. Um, fundamentalists were more apt to talk to one another. Um, just had a, the second barbecue I ever did uh, with just nothing but a bunch of fundamentalists. I mean, we had folks from the branch. We had folks, uh, I, I think uh, we had some, we had a uh, Le, some LeBarons, Joshua Erickson, um, just some independents. And I mean, I, I and from what I hear, because I obviously wasn't part of the movement back then, but from what I hear is that just like you were saying, twenty years ago, that's not 
that's not happening. Right. And that's not due to me. I think it's due to all those other people that are willing to talk now and have a dialogue and and just be friendly. Right. And and so that gives me a lot of encouragement. Moving on to to kind of the next thing. What what is what does your church believe and how are those beliefs manifest among your group? Well, one one thing and and again to so to to come back from where we were a little bit uh, of our conversation, we start, start to look at these problems and you start to see what seems to happen over and over and over again. Men get old. Right. And people start getting close to them. And then pretty soon things change. All of a sudden you see, well, this man, you know, kind of got circumvented and boom, he gets put into a position of authority and starts taking everything in some weird direction and, People start losing a voice to speak and 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 to express. They this isn't the direction I wanted to go. Right. And uh, and so we started to walk, see these things and the way they happened. And again, the questions start to ask. We we start asking these questions. Well, how do you stop this stuff? How do you stop this stuff from happening? And so again, you start picking up the doctrine and covenants and you start seeing. But we had to get past this idea. That you know, every time you'd read these things, what the Lord would lay out, you'd say, "Well, oh, that, well, that's that's the church. That's not us. We're the priesthood, and we're a theocracy, and we, you know, our leaders answer directly to God, and they just dictate, and it's supposed to work, and it does until it doesn't." Right. And uh, and and so here's the here's the so you start saying, "Well, do we just keep doing this?" And I use this analogy, and I used it again the other day to somebody. So you, you get all done, and you're laying down in the mud. Gone through one of these horrible things, and you're laying down in the mud. You know, and the Savior kind of kneels down there by you and puts his hand on you and looks at you in the eyes and says, Have you had enough? Or do you want to do it my way? And we go, uh, Now give me one more round. <laughs> I, th- I think I want to do this one more time, and then we'll, then we'll pick up your book and start to see what you say. Right. And uh and and that just seems to be what what I see over and over and over in the fundamentalist people. And so you start picking up the books and you're like, "Oh. He actually says that, you know, when when people preside over other people, they should do it by their own their by the people's consent. There should be a sustaining process." Right. And that should happen at least every year, sometimes more than that, but People ought to have a voice to be able to sustain who their leader, leaders are. Right. The The body of the church has a responsibility to see that iniquity doesn't get in within that body. And if you can't hold people accountable, how do you do that? Right. And uh, that, was, that was one distinct thing that started to change with us. Another one was we tried to find out where, why do leaders... Why did leadership start to take on an identity? Mm. Pretty soon, it's not just, I'm doing this job. This is who I am. I am the leader. I am the prophet, or I'm the president. I'm this. And uh, we start to look at this and go, well, where does the Lord say these are lifelong appointments? Right. And, uh, you know, and how... You know, is this what he intended them to be? A man to get old and uh, and start doing some, some funny stuff? 
And we'd witnessed this over and over and over again. I don't know what you're talking about. The whole Biden thing seems to be working out really well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this isn't subject just to, just to religion, is it? But, but uh, and, and so you start to say, well, is that what he intended? You know, we, somebody's driving the car. You know, they don't get all puffed up with an identity that starts to say, I am the driver of the car, and I'm going to drive until I'm dead and the rest of you die with me. Right. It's like, you know, a guy, he, there's, something, there's something very noble in my mind about a King Benjamin that recognizes when it's time to step down. Yeah. And where is that a dishonor? But in a fundamentalist circle, it's like, it's like you've got to hang on to this until the last dog is dead. And, and you say, why? Why does this have to be this way? And so we started questioning some of those things to say, look, when somebody gets old, have some pity on them and let them retire with some grace and dignity. And, and now if you're going to do that, what you've got to do is you've got to uh, broaden out the leadership because right. you can't wait for somebody to die and then, and then bring somebody else in that's totally green and say, here, Take you're it. the next leader. No, you have to train your replacement. And yeah, exactly. And great leadership always pushes authority down. Yep. And 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 uh, uh, insecure leadership pulls authority up to them. Right. And and so you you start to see you know they want to they want to create that one position or those few positions that nobody's questioning that they become absolutely indispensable to this program and then when they die the whole program starts to falter and shake because now what are we going to do? Right. This guy's gone. Instead of, why not push down leadership? Why not? Why can't a president, why can't a, a, a group of leaders take care of these responsibilities for a while and, and then allow other people in if we truly believe this is God's work and not, well, mine and God's? Right, right. So, no. yeah. Yeah, because here's the thing, right? Because even Joseph was that way. If you look at what Joseph was saying, he said, I had my experience with God the Father and the Son. Now you can have yours, right? right? His whole thrust is, I want you to step into divinity. I want you to be able to see this. And for whatever reason, we as people constantly feel like, well, I, I can't be that person, right? right? I'm certainly guilty of that feeling, right? Like, yeah. I, I'm just not worthy, and so I, I think you're right. I think I think that. Well, and we see this at the end of the prophet Joseph's life when he wanted Hiram to take over and lead the church. Right. And he wanted he had other jobs he wanted to go do that 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 he needed to do, but you know people didn't want it. Right. You know, I mean, and it's hard to be a George Washington. Yeah. And step down and say I'm done. Right. I'm done. But look how look how George Washington's memory, I mean, his, you know that that we hold in his legacy, uh, is is, you know, he will always be the father of our country. Well, here's the thing. Because of that one act, and I love Washington. Washington's a personal hero of mine. Yeah. Um, when 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 he's getting ready to leave office, King George over in England says if he leaves office. Save Jesus only. He's the greatest man that's ever lived. 
Yeah. Because he had every incentive to stay in. The army loved him. The people loved him. The whole, the whole ball of wax. Right? And he leaves. And because of the precedent that he set, we don't even have a actual rule on the books where you can only serve two terms. Everyone would just always shame you and say, are you better than George Washington? Right. Right? And so that there's no reason that can't exist in fundamentalism as well. I know it terrifies people, but, you know, when the ego starts to subside, and I know that people don't want to, people want, who doesn't want to be in a job and and be faithful to the very bitter end till God takes them and boom, their head hits the pulpit and down they go. I mean, they want to be there right to the very bitter end, and that's okay. But one of the problems is it's it's too much about them. Instead of right, instead of Christ and His kingdom, and and I like the way one man put this. It, it just it resonated with me when I heard it, and I just said, "That's how I want to be." He and he just says, "When God calls me to be done with my job, if He wants to move me into the lowliest place in the church and kingdom, that's okay." He says, "I have not one room to complain or to feel like I've been." Uh, unjustly dealt with it was my privilege to serve while he asked me to serve and when he asked me to step down into another job that's where i want to be and i thought you know that's a rare rare thing yeah for somebody to 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 take that role well and i think you hit hit the nail on the head with the word serve right too often because again i think it's just part of the human condition we look at leadership as a a sign of how righteous someone is. Sure. Um, and, and that feeds the ego and that plays into all sorts of problems. Then you get into entitlement and those sorts of things. If you view it from a servant's perspective, now it's your time to serve, to step up and to do the things which... Um, god has asked you to do um i don't think you can ever go wrong with a servant's mentality there right and and here's one another issue that that i see that that is problematic or potentially problematic now you've got a man like john taylor that was I mean, he was faithful right to the very bitter end i mean till his last dying breath i mean but that's that's not always the way it goes with people, especially with different dementias and things that start to happen, even just a natural old age. But there's a in, there's also another problem in psychology. They say our last human need is the need to leave a legacy and say, mm -hmm. I was there, I mattered, I made a difference, and so forth. So here's men in their last phases of their life clinging to this last human need to say, I still matter. Who wants to give up a position of authority you know, at the last part of your life, when that's the time when we need so bad, humanly, to say that our life mattered. And and so I say to wait till somebody's in that position and then say, hey, don't you think it's time to step down? They don't want to step down. I watched my dad. There was a time when my dad wanted to step down, and we wouldn't let him. And then when he got a little older... He didn't want to step down because that was that was the last bit of usefulness that was left in him, and yet and yet uh, I've watched other men do step down before they got very old, 
and you know what their their legacy is is left intact well let me ask you this could that be a product of putting emphasis on the wrong things right i absolutely because here's the thing my legacy as i think about it it's my kids it's my family look if I die and someone writes on my headstone, here lies Dave Sanders, he was a decent podcaster and a good surveyor, I'm going to be so pissed, <laughs> right? That means I failed at everything that was yeah. truly important. And so we look for to, to leave our mark. I think, we, I, think, I think that's reserved for families. So, Dave, I mean, I'm going to turn this back on you mm-hmm. once here and interview you for yeah. two seconds. When you do pass from this this life, what would you want authentically written on your headstone? You ever thought about that? I have. And I, I know exactly what I wanted to say. He loved his Savior. He loved the gospel. And he was loved by his wife and his, ch- his wives and his children. Yeah. That's it. And you want that to be authentic, huh? Yeah. That's that's what I want. Uh, uh, absolutely. I want when 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 I pass beyond the veil. I never want my loved ones, whether that's my wives, whether that's my children, to ever doubt that I loved them. Right. And everything I did to a certain extent was for them. It's only after having a family that I begin to understand what the Lord says when he says, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. What the Lord is saying there is like any father, this is all for you. Right. This is all for you. And so even what I'm doing here, Stephen, you and me talking, this is in hopes that my kids and your kids and your grandkids and my kids and grandkids will never have to hide again. Right. I've, I work hard to kick that door down so that my posterity has a chance to live this out in the open without fear. Right. And so that's my worst fear is that I die and they say and 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 they can't say without beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loved us. Right. Or not. Yep. And if you're going to leave a legacy, Dave, Leave it with your family. Yes, and uh, and have and then and be in that job till That's the day the most till the day God calls you home, and uh, and and serve you know serve in in whatever capacity the work of God that bigger picture. And I believe that we all have a, like I say, I believe we that God calls us to responsibility above and beyond our personal work. He does have another job for us to do. Serve that and do that well, and if we and if we can make it not about us and our ego, mm-hmm. perhaps we'll have the presence of mind when we realize, hey, there's somebody that's much better at this than me. You know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a person you trained, your help mentor, perhaps you know the the young smart yeah. aleck kid that you never thought would amount to a hill of beans, and and he comes up and and you just and all you want to do is step aside because because your heart is the work of God right. will will thrive and be better with him than it was with me. Yep. And I go I go that's that's what inspires me when it comes to church organization. Yep, absolutely. 
Absolutely. All right, let's move on. Let me take a quick break here, and then we will uh, come back in just a second. So with with the Nielsen Nailers, there's there's always certain things that I think most fundamentalists believe. Let's let's go over a few things that uh, that that your church believes, and let's explore those a little bit. So let's start with the obvious one because it's obvious: plural marriage. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you guys believe in practice? Uh, yeah, absolutely, and and do do believe that it's it's a portion of the fullness of the gospel and uh, uh we do we do live and practice it though though probably uh uh being a smaller group of people i think that, that there's certain dynamics that that uh that play into this if you will that uh some of the old ideas i think that are not real prevalent among us as far as as far as say uh, course as we talked earlier the placement marriage thing uh you know you want to open up the door for a lot of more free will right you know rather than rather than even even pressure even if it's not even placement putting undue pressure on somebody to enter into plural marriage uh is is i think is can be problematic especially when the motivation is well do you want to get you know do you want to go to the highest degree in the celestial kingdom well, sometimes to a kid, they don't know what that means, right? And 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 to to lay that out in front of them uh, is is I think can be a problem. I've I've got several of my uh, my uh, children that uh, joined the mainstream Mormon Church, and I always told them, you will never find me pushing this lifestyle onto you. It is a you've got to believe it, and you've got to want it, and you've got to be committed to live it. Good for you. And uh, and if you don't want to do that, you know, I recommend that you go find, you you work where you can. I I I'm not your judge, and I don't look and say, well, you're gonna go to you're gonna if you don't live plural marriage, you're going to hell. Right. I I go. I don't I don't believe that. I believe if you're going to strive to live this way, you need to want to. Right. And if you don't, if if that's not something that that. You believe and understand, and you even to the degree feel called to do. Then mind your business. Yeah, don't worry about it. You know, uh, God will God will open that door for you when He sees you're ready. So, as far as our group is concerned, I am trying to speak carefully to this because I, you know, I certainly don't want to get a lot of texts and say, "Good grief!" I listened to that podcast. That's not what we believe. That's what you sure. believe. <laughs> and, sure. So, but but I think by and large, most of our people, we believe in in a lot of free will, in the sense that that girls don't marry who they don't want to marry. Right. And uh, incidentally, because of that, why there's there's probably less plural marriage in the sense that you know you give somebody so open those doors for people, and you know sometimes people make these choices and they think, well, man, do I want to marry this guy and you know, he's got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. Right. You know, uh, or, you know, and so those things are just natural. But I believe that in the long term, in the bigger picture, I think it's it's actually more important that that God touch somebody's heart. Yeah. And he can touch a girl's heart. And even if this guy is, is older, 
he can touch your heart and say, why don't you go uh, join up with that guy and work with in that family unit there? And I absolutely believe that he can do that. And for myself, that would be the kind of plural marriage I'm most interested in, rather than be married to somebody that was kind of pressured into it, if if you know what I mean. No, absolutely I do. And, and yeah, I have, like I said, it's a nuanced view. I have no problems if a woman was to go to a leader and say, can you help me find someone Right. But if that woman feels like she knows where she's supposed to belong, and you have her and you have the per, you know prospective groom and you have the girl's father saying this makes sense and this we've prayed about this respect that agency absolutely respect that agency period and i would look i understand what i'm saying here and i would go to the map for that every yep. single time without thinking twice that's 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 I'm, how i feel i'm a dad of of daughters so i get it i get it um how about Adam God doctrine? You guys espouse that? Yes, um, yeah, we we do, and uh, some of those those doctrines, like we we our group of people, we tend to be uh, not so much like mandate a doctrine, like like sure. And uh, the reason I'm coming off there, there was a, a and there was an old uh, idea, and Joseph Musser talked about this, and it became part of actually a requirement. Uh, in in one of their uh, when they started to bring some of the their brethren together in in more of a of a higher uh, okay select group of, of men when they start bringing them together one of the requirements was that they had to believe the Adam God doctrine uh, and I think primarily that was because they had to be enough on the same page with some of the old early Mormon doctrine that they was didn't want to just bring people together with every strange doctrine out there right well, the adam god doctrine because it has been it's been uh pushed really heavily against and and the whole idea is it changed i see a new uh, like a, a changing it's like a re a re uh looking at that doctrine and uh seeing that it wasn't quite such a weird doctrine that people started yeah. to think it was uh, and starting to say, hey, this this actually makes sense. Now, it always made sense to me. From the first time I remember my dad telling me about it, I thought, well, heck yeah. Your yep. father comes down and and figures out how to get this whole world started, and who else would want to come down here? And, right. And, uh, and then, you know, who else wants to, who else wants to sire, you know, the, the savior of this world? You know, he's going to come and take care of that, that business, and and uh, and you know, we see we see this when we really look into the scriptures we see that doctrine. It's it's through and through. It's certainly through the temple. Yep. Uh, uh, the old, the old yes, temple. It is. We we see this played out. As a guy who whose last time going through the LDS Church temple ordinance was about six months before the COVID shutdown, it's still there. Really? It's still there. They'll never be able to fully expunge it. It's there, but unless you've been taught what the Adam God doctrine is, it's going to be hard to spot now. Right. But it's still there. And I, I, 
I'll borrow the explanation. Somebody else, somebody else made this explanation, and although it makes sense to me, there's there are many that that struggle with that doctrine. They don't understand it, and and I like the explanation I heard a, a man give one time to some kids that were, we don't get this, we don't understand this, and he just says, look, Scripture says, you know that the Savior will introduce you to the Father. Mm-hmm. So go learn about him. Right. And if you learn all about him, guess what? He'll teach you about the Father. Yep. And so so to me, that's a good explanation for them. But for me, it just made such perfect sense that we're part of a big family. Right. And uh, and when, when our Father in Heaven stepped down here to take on this role of Adam, there was somebody else that cared just as much about everything, stepped into that role for him, whether it was his father, whether it was his brother, all that doesn't even matter to me. It's it to me. It was what made sense to me. It was all family. Yeah. It's it's we're we're one big huge family. Yep. And uh, and and we look out for each other. Yep. The gods look out for each other. Yep. And uh, and 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 when I could when I could see it in that in that realm, I just went. Well, it makes perfect sense to me. So by and large, our group of people. You know, if if you stood up and said you didn't believe the Adam God doctrine, well, you'd probably be looked at like, well, he's one of those, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. as a guy who never was a Mormon before he turned seventeen, eighteen, somewhere in there, um, and then went from LDS to fundamentalism, I'll say this for the Adam God doctrine: it makes our father. So much more personal. Right. So much more personal. And then when you add in, you know, like King Follett into that, all of a sudden, God becomes who I think he wants us to recognize him as. A father. A dad. And that helps foster a relationship with deity better than anything else I know. Right. And I, I find such joy and peace in that one doctrine. Well, and, and you know, just and just to carry that on a little bit, one one interesting scripture that really really hit me hard and touched me along the same line, and you'll remember this in the in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says, and and Christ was praying, you know, and it, and it says, and sweating as it were great drops of blood and going through the the real the atonement this really difficult thing and it says it says and he prayed and an angel came strengthening him and on it's interesting because because what did he pray before this angel came well you know the, the words he cried out was he cried out abba father and uh now abba is interesting because it's an aramaic word right and uh, and it and there's no real Greek uh, good translation to that. But the closest closest we can get to Abba is my father. It's mm. almost like some have even said my daddy, my my eternal. It's like a very familial uh, tie, not right. just uh, a formal father. It's like this is my father. And and there here was our savior of this world crying out for his father. Right. And it says an angel came and strengthened him. There isn't an angel in existence that could have strengthened him except his father. Right. 
and 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 realizing that realizing that that tender moment when father comes to strengthen son to to do that work that he didn't think he could do right it was potent and powerful to to really recognize that and and there and then paul tells us later on when we qualify ourselves our spirit will reach with that spirit whereby we will be able to cry abba right yeah no it it when someone says what does it matter i'm like oh you poor soul you poor soul it it means everything what does it matter that you had a personal father right in your family or whatever why not just pick any father right you're like there's something about that family that says this is my family right Right and that and to, and to know that and and when you're when you drop down on your knees and and you're just pouring your heart out and you can't go on, to know this is, this is not just somebody up there that's, that's, that's got a mission to listen to me. This is my father. Right. This is my father that I'm talking to. Right. I. And and when someone says, "What does it matter?" I'm like, I don't know. Let's read in John where it says, "This is life eternal to know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom He sent." It's vitally important. Yeah. And it's vitally important, Stephen, because I feel like it puts us into into a very real proximity to deity. Right. And not just any deity. To our Father, to our Dad, period. And I think that has lasting effects that I feel sometimes people miss out on by not having that. Yep. What do you? Oh, what was I was that? just going to say, and just I didn't want to pass up no. more of your question. You know, kind of. So some of the, a few of the distinct things we do believe in the Adam God doctrine, and and as we as we talked earlier, you know, we 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 believe that uh, you know in trying to organize ourselves more according to the Doctrine and Covenants and the way the Scriptures laid out, and perhaps less after some of the some of the fundamentalist ideas that have come down through. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't dismiss them and say and say even like with like we might say the priesthood council and in some groups say, you know, well this is these are the friends of Jesus Christ or it's this council of friends or the or they represent the ancient Sanhedrin uh you know and so on and so forth and and so they're this special government of god we we there's there's a lot of that that becomes very ambiguous in my mind and and we so we tend to we'll look at things and say look the lord says to 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 organize when you're running a church that this is how you should do it this help right. with the problem so as, as far as the doctrine, we do believe in plural marriage. We believe in the Adam God doctrine, um, and uh, and we've tried to organize ourselves as close to the scriptures as we can at the present time, and uh, and and take this view a little bit that we try to put the words of the Savior top, the words of the prophet Joseph to help explain the words of the Savior. But we don't put the uh, the teachings of, even though we'll hold the teachings of Brigham and Heber and John Taylor and those men up high, we don't put those on the same level as the words of the Savior. If if there's a conflict, mm-hmm. we should follow the Savior. 
I, I and and not yeah. and 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 if there's a if there's you know because but there's there's so many and in fundamentalism even even in where when I grew up there was all these mental gymnastics that you would have to go yeah. through to try to say okay how do we how do we fit with what brother Brigham said with what the brethren that we knew said and with what the savior said and you're trying to twist this all up to make it all make sense and it comes to a point where you just say you know what if it's really ambiguous what did the savior say is it clear and if it's clear maybe we should maybe we should first do, do that. that yeah and uh, and if we need some extra help then let's look and see what the brethren have said through the years about this and see if that helps us gain light and understanding uh, on a doctrine or the way it should go. And and then maybe not be quite so tied to it just because you can find a place that Brigham Young said something. Maybe just said it a little different instead of a place of this is absolute truth, right? unquestioned truth, as though Christ said it himself. There's many things, and I and I... I love Brigham Young. I, I his, his he was a profound man to read his writings, and yet there's some things that in his writings that that I just go, I'm I need to have a conversation with him to have him explain that to me. Yeah, because it doesn't make sense to me today, and and most of those those early brethren I would feel that way with. There were things that 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 got said, and I and I go, I just need some explanation on that. But to, right. f- to find one little verse that Brigham said in this sermon here, and we hold to it and live and, then, and, and, then and live and die by it, and hold, build everything around that, right? right. Um, and and if there's one critique I have also um, of fundamentalism as a whole, it's that we tend to do a knee jerk reaction. If the LDS Church comes out and says something, we uh we tend to go the opposite direction because nothing good can come from the church. Right. Right. And I'm like, well, no, hang tight. Let's, let's, let's honestly on each principle, let's apply some principled scrutiny to it. Right. And come up with a decision from there. Right. Um, and, and, and go from there. Let's not just do a knee jerk reaction and maybe carry forward a false tradition just because the LDS church is in favor of it. Right. So I absolutely I, I feel like if if we're truly who we say we are and we're fundamentalism, then let's look at the fundamentals and and line those out. And so consequently, what you said there about just going back to the doctrine and covenants when you start talking about church government, uh, church structure, I think that's highly commendable because the Lord does a really good job of laying out what it's supposed to be. Right. right. Right down to, to the quorum of the twelve, which is, you know, they're they're essentially traveling ministers to minister to 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 those stakes or or to those people outside of, of stakes. And then in organized stakes, that's something different. And so I, I I I commend you for that because that that also takes a bit of humility to be like, okay, maybe we should go look at that book again. <laughs> Maybe we should dust it off and maybe really to start taking a look at it. Absolutely. Because as fundamentalists, a lot of what we've tried so far hasn't worked real well. Right. right? It, it can, let's just call it what it is, right? And we're small in number, which is fine. I'm not saying we have to be massive, but we haven't grown a whole bunch. Um, I think most of our replacement rate comes from births. Um, maybe it's time we look at some other things. 
you know go back to the source yep i i i would agree with that and if the truth is really as potent as we we claim it is to me i say then why be afraid of it if we're unless we're trying to create some uh dogmatic social hierarchy that feeds you know and i hate to say it that way because it sounds really sinister that just feeds people's egos but quite honestly we're human yeah and that's a lot of times what happens and and like i said before it takes a rare individual to be able to step back and just say i'm done i'm done and the work of god will go better if I step back and go finish taking care of my family and finish out my life and let somebody else take this work and and it will thrive. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about ordinances? Uh, you guys do baptism and, and all that, right? Yep. What about temple ordinances? Do you guys have temples? Um, we, we don't. Uh, we have, we do have endowment house. Okay. And so... We are in the process. We have, it's been a long evolved process to come to that place. You know, there's a, there's a lot of fear associated with these things, especially when you come from the background that we came from, uh, where you don't touch these things. Right. These things are going to be when set, we're set in order. And, and when one mighty and strong comes or the, the, uh, the temples will be, uh, given back to us or whatever, and there were a lot of these stories, and they came from from good sources, but they were also came from sources where men that had been kicked out of these places, and one wonders if there wasn't just a little bit of, uh, you know, we're going to be vindicated, right? And uh, because some of the old stories, I mean, we all loved the Salt Lake Temple, I mean, it was just, you know, just absolute icon, and yet. In fundamentalists, we were we were told in different uh, circles, if you will, or places that one day that that temple would be turned back to us, and uh, God would cleanse it, and uh, that the fundamentalist people would finally get to go in and receive their ordinances, and and that the fundamentalists perhaps would use it by night, and the Mormon Church would use it by day, and that God would open up those doors that they could receive all their blessings, and and it was like here's the icon. I mean, this is the old, this is the Mormon icon, if you will. And I know this is might be a sensitive area because you got a great love for the Salt Lake Temple. I I I listened to your podcast and and how heart wrenching it was to watch it be gutted, yeah. you know. And yet and yet I wonder if God didn't allow that to happen. Because the fundamentalist people have been hanging on to that icon to the point where they wouldn't even look out and say, maybe it's time for us to do something and make a sacrifice somewhat equivalent to our forefathers. I think you are 100% correct. And I've said this before. It's been a process like watching an old friend die. Right. A very painful, slow death. I'll say this. Gosh, I I can't believe it. I think I've said this before, but every time I think about it, I, I keep thinking to myself, who the hell was I to do this? But, I mean, this is a temple that when I lived plural marriage the first time, I took both my wives to, right? Um, 
there was a residue. And this was, yeah. I recognized this long before I ever, I ever was a polygamist. Because that was like the second temple I ever attended, right? Like, I got my endowments in Boise, and I'm like, I want to go to Salt Lake right now. And we did. Amber humored me, and she's like, okay, let's go. So we made, we made the trip down, and there was a, there was a palpable residue that was left right. over. That's gone now. And in some ways, I feel somewhat relieved by it. And I think we should all feel that, right? Yeah. Sometimes there is nothing. I had a good friend who did have a spouse who died. And I remember he said, is it bad that I feel relieved a little bit? Right. And I was like, no, I don't I don't think that's bad. I, I, it doesn't mean you didn't care. It just means you were tired of shouldering that burden for as long as you did. Right. And I don't think your sp- your wife would have any ill feelings towards you for feeling that. I think with what has been done, what they are continuing to do with that temple, there should be some relief now. That's done. Yeah. There's nothing we can do. We've saw that the we saw the friend die. Now let's go forward. Right. And let's move forward. Let's cut ties. Let's go to work. Let's build yep. one of our own. And that's what I absolutely believe is 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 really where what is really important and and again for me when I realized that 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 we are a temple building people. Mm-hmm. God as he says, you know, I always command my people to build temples. It's a part of the fullness of the everlasting gospel and yet fundamentalists for a hundred years and I don't mean across the board, because some have more and less there are still some that are die hard we are never touching this stuff until the one mighty and strong or somebody bigger than us comes and tells us to do it and and that's okay that's that's their choice but for me i go i go the fullness of the gospel is the fullness of the gospel yeah and and i believe that god will open up the door for any one of his children to live the fullness if they choose to if they desire it and they want to live that way. He will open up that door. So, absolutely, uh, uh, temple. We, you know, we're we've we've had an endowment house for some time, but that's not sufficient, and a temple. And so we we are in the process of of working towards that. Good for you. And so because again, it's 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 not there till it's there. I right. Mean, and the fullness isn't the fullness until it's full. Right. And as much as you want to. I guess where we've probably changed the most, and I and I probably say I've changed, and and if other people of our of our society would agree, then that's that's great. But it's it's kind of to this point where you've kind of let some of the fear go, and you've just said, you know what, I would rather I would rather engage and do all I can to establish the fullness of the gospel, you know, and and help the Lord with his work than to sit back and make an excuse or wait for some future event to say, okay, well, maybe then, maybe then it will happen. Yeah. And having said that, I know that terrifies people, but it doesn't have to because as you move and you engage, God gives assurances that you're on the right track. 
He right. doesn't have to say, okay, you got to wait till you die to get your knuckles wrapped to see if you did the wrong thing. He truly does. He, when you get on the right track and you're trying to do the right thing, he absolutely helps you know whether or not, okay, this is the right thing or that's not, don't do that. Go do this mm-hmm. and watch that, that evolve. And so in relation to the different fundamentalist groups, I know there's, there's a little bit of heartburn over this because different people feel like, especially when they see different groups interacting and doing certain things like some believe we can do endowment but we can't build the temple and some believe that we can build the temple but we've got to only go so far and and others know we shouldn't touch this at all and there starts to become a little bit of heartburn with people to where they just just kind of want i wish we'd all just leave this alone and wait for somebody one mighty and strong to come and and set it all straight but you know, I, I made this remark to somebody, and this is this is this helps me because I think you take you take our current situation in Mormon fundamentalism, and now you take a man like take any one of them, take John Tater, Heber C. Kimball, Wilford Woodruff, any one of those men, and just take and transplant them from their day to our day, without their authority, with their with their character. Would John Taylor be a man that would just stand aside and just say, hmm, I just, I guess we just can't do anything? No, these were doers. These were doers. These were men that would just look around and say, what in the world? Is this what this came to? Look, here's the thing, right? <coughs> Excuse me. It's one of the things that I fell in love with Mormonism when I, when I, uh, after I got a testimony of the fullness, right? There are some st- Pardon the expression. There are some straight up badass stories of those guys, right? right? We're gonna march our butts out west. We're gonna carve a society out of the desert, and we're gonna get it done. So, like you were saying, if John Taylor, Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, if they were looking at our day, they saw the condition of the church in apostasy. It's not like they would be like, "Yeah, you should wait. Just, just sit down." And keep in mind, Joseph Smith said a man will never be, um, how do you put that? Something about a, a man will never be in trouble for believing too much. Right. Right? I don't know if that sounds yeah, familiar yeah, to you. Yeah, it's, un, un, he's condemned for unbelief. Right, exactly. Yep. You'll never, it's, it's unbelief, right? Okay, so let's say we were supposed to wait around for somebody. The Lord will at least look and say, you did something, right? You did something. Uh, you know, and, and I know that, I know this really, this terrifies people, but, I, but I've but i said that many times. I'd way rather, I'd way rather my son get up and go mow the lawn, even if he mowed over his, some of my prized roses, uh, that, you know, but, but got it, tried to get it done, than that kid that's, that sat there and did nothing because he was so afraid to try. And took and hid his talent in the sand and said, Oh, I know God's a pretty austere man. He's going to hold me responsible for these things, so I'm not going to do nothing. Right. And I, I know that terrifies people to, to even talk that way. But but there's something that resonates so true. And and again, I I, I feel like that, that God requires us to step forward in faith and exercise our faith. And, and in reality, we do. We exercise our faith in unbelief. Or we exercise it in belief. 
which one are we going to do? We, we're going to go down a road of, of stories and deception or, or tell ourselves this and then invest in that? Or I would rather invest in, you know, I want the gospel. I want the same faith that Joseph Smith lived. Yes. I want the same one that Brigham Young did. I, you know, and, and I don't want to stand back and, and, and say, man, boy, if I could have just lived in their day when they, when they actually had the real gospel. We got we got some other watered down thing, and that's what makes me feel like when you, you start reading Maccabees and some of this stuff that these it was like these guys they stood up and they just says we're not gonna stand aside and do nothing. Right. We're gonna we're gonna make we're gonna do something. We're gonna yeah. go, show God that that this matters to us, and engage ourselves. Somewhere along the way, as fundamentalists, we were content to lose the vision of Joseph. Right. And and what I mean by that is that we were really good at holding on to plural marriage. Right. But we lost the vision about the community. I think I've said this on the podcast before. How many chapels did Joseph Smith build in his lifetime? Wanna take a guess? Zero. Yeah, I was didn't build any. He wanted communities and he wanted temples. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, we have to recapture that vision and go forward. So I commend you guys for taking that step. Because I, let me say this. I don't think anything will bring forth the heavens quite like sacrificing for a temple. Right. And there are blessings to be had there. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Well, I, I absolutely believe it. And, and uh, you know, I, again, it's it's like... You take a look at yourself and just say, "Can you doubt plural marriage?" No. After you've, you know, but and yet there's many people that haven't engaged in it that would just say, "But Dave, could you be wrong?" And you're like, you're just like, look, you're talking from a theoretical standpoint. I'm talking from a reality standpoint, and they're two different places. Yeah. And uh, and and that's why I say God gives his he gives us a testimony. Especially when we really, in, in honesty, try to do what he's asked us to do. He gives us a testimony that we're on the right track in this doctrine or this principle that we're believing in. And so we don't have to live in ignorance. No. And uh, you don't have to say, well, I hope, you know, I'm going to live till I die. And just hope that maybe I did right and I married this other lady and raised these children and this whole family. And hopefully I did right. I just, I just think, no, we don't have to live that way. Right. If we engage in our heart, he will he will give us a testimony of our course, and we'll know whether it's pleasing to him. Yep, yep. And, again, being doers of the word, not yeah. hearers alone. So so an endowment house. And I remember this from, from early church history. So is vicarious work done in the endowment house, or is it just your, your, you know, to your endowment? It's it's a uh, it's primarily just for yours, uh, you know. In as far as precedent is concerned, they did some vicarious work in the endowment house, but it was very very select, right. and very careful. As far as endowments, actual endowments for the dead, uh, uh, Brigham Brigham taught that that must be done in a temple. Yep, there can be baptisms for the dead. There can be some others other work for the dead, but. But the actual ordinance, the the uh, the temple endowment itself, needs to be done in a house prepared for that purpose, a temple. 
uh, to be proper. And as far, you know, I mean, if, if God wants to make exceptions for that, I suppose he can. But to me, I just say, why does he need to? If, if that's what needs to be, if that's what's right, then he ought to have his children step up and, and be trying to fulfill the law rather than to find out it, find a justification around it. Right. That's my, my view of it. How has it been received that, uh, with, within the church itself that, uh, that you guys are going forward with temple? Um, mixed reviews. Mixed reviews. By and large, though, uh, by and large, it's, 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 it's gone rather well. We've had, we've had a lot of discussion over the years, and it's been an evolved process for probably at least 15 years. I mean, just getting people to accept an endowment house was, was a big, right. a big step. And, uh, but it's taking the step even from that to the temple is just another big step. But we've had a lot of, a lot of classes and things that we've, we've done to try to prepare and, and give people opportunity to ask questions, express their fears and, and, you know, and really try to honestly address the concerns that people have so that you can move forward. Because if you don't, if you can't move forward with a building like that with the people, why are you doing it? Why would you do it? Because it's going to sit empty at that point. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's about, it's, it's truly about the people. And, uh, and as far as I'm concerned, uh, the temple, the, the building of the temple does as much for character building as going through it would 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 do for the spiritual aspect. Yep. And yet I never understood that when I was one of these little fundamentalist kids that would go walk around the Salt Lake Temple and dream of the day when God would turn that over to us and we got and we would get that building. Right. And, right. And and now I and now I look and I go, I'll always love to see that building. But the whole picture is different to me today. Yeah. Yeah, Sam, kind of I'm I'm really excited for you guys because in this process I, I know you'll be blessed in in, yeah. in getting a temple up. It's it's a huge step and there are blessings. The, the Lord wants just not a temple attending people, but a temple building people. Right. And there is something to be said. Um, I've never had the experience but but sacrificing for that opportunity. Ab- absolutely. And and you, you you know you listen to those old stories and you read in the Kirtland Temple, the Nauvoo Temple, the Salt Lake Temple, Logan, Manti and and these people's lives. I mean and they would, you know, that was the, that was some of the greatest meaning of their life was having that privilege to be able yeah. to do that. Yep. And uh, and to, and to dis- basically give your very best and hand it to God and say, "This is this is our very best." Right. And hopefully, help establish that covenant with Him, where He says, "You're my people." Gotcha, gotcha. Is that under construction now? Uh, not not physical construction. It's in the it's in the design, it's in the design and and phase right now. The the. Uh, the drawing and and design phase and we don't even have really have a location yet i'll tell you what when you get close to having that thing built you give me a call and i'll go get it surveyed for you really i will do it all for free man you're awesome 
I I I want to help you where I can. So you 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 when you get to that point, you tell me, okay. and I will I'll do the layout on it. Man, that would be that'd be great. Well, and these are these are some of the 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 blessings that that the Lord gives to us to work together with all of His children to to help create something great. And I go, that's that's what we're about. Yep. That truly and 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 you know these doctrinal differences that we have are very easily easy to solve. Yeah. You know, I mean, they they truly are. I yep. mean, you, God touched somebody's heart and and just says, "Hey, you were a little off there, and you were a little off there," and you're like, "Gosh, boy, now we actually see quite a bit the same, don't we?" Yep. And uh, and I really believe when we start working together for His kingdom, instead of defending our stories and our ego, we're we'll we'll start to see a different picture. Absolutely. No, I'm serious. You give me a call, and if you need help with engineering. A civil, throw it my way. I'll I'll find somebody. Super. I'll 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 foot that bill. Um. Okay, so we've covered covered the big ones. So how would you say you guys most differ from the LDS Church? Because a lot of my LDS listeners are gonna gonna ask for that. They're gonna walk into your building. How how are things going to be different? Um. Primarily, the 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 main differences that I see is that is you know we we would administer the sacrament we would do a lot of the things that they would tend to see although some of those ordinances might be administered differently sure. a little bit differently more uh more old style so to speak using kind of, using the signs of the priesthood yeah, yeah and 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 like sacrament you know type thing you know we we don't uh we we don't pass the like well, the tray down along the line, you know, to people. I mean, it's individually administered to each individual person. Things of that nature are, are, uh, are a little bit singular that somebody would look at and go, oh, okay, that's a little different than than we would do it. But, but administrations and and things of that nature, I think there's there's going to be minor differences that people would see. Um, obviously, there's there's not a strong hierarchy so to speak in you know like you would tend to have more in the church we would probably look our our group of people would probably look a whole lot more like a stake in the in a in okay. the church where there's different wards that kind of come together but you've got a stake president and a couple of counselors and a high council um we don't have a 12 apostles in our organization because we we haven't felt that that that's a need right now we're you're, we're just trying to to strengthen up the base and what the lord is trying to help us to to get established and we're not a large group of people either like like some are and uh and so there's i i see a time when there when there will be a need for uh the gospel to go on more on a broader scale uh to people uh, all over the world right and uh and so i i do see a time when that might happen but but by and large had a had a man during covid when the mormon church kind of shut down and he couldn't go to church anymore he started coming over to our church and he was and he was he really enjoyed it you know even some of the doctrine we talked about didn't scare him but he he just would say things like this reminds me of like like kind of a small little ward out in 
the middle of nowhere, you know, where we all just kind of get together, you guys, and you talk, and, and you're, it's a lot more personal than a, a big ward. So a lot of similarities, I'm, I'm guessing. And probably we're probably a lot more similar to the, the way the church is, Mormon church is structured today than we were in the past. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then what about missionary work? You guys have missionaries or? What we do have is we, we tend to have more of a service mission okay. right now rather than a proselyting mission. Um, so we will have young young boys come up and, and even the girls and they would like to go serve six months, a year, two years, whatever on a, on a service mission. And, and they will travel around to the different communities and just help on the projects, like help help people build houses, help the widows, help take care of uh, of just any needs that might be a part of that community. And so we, we, we're associated with communities in Missouri and in Idaho, uh, two or three different places in Idaho, up in Canada, down by Puebla, Mexico. Um, and so we'll send these missionaries uh, just to go and stay in these communities and work and not necessarily even say well just serve our people it's like serve all of the people whoever serves yeah, yeah whoever needs help go serve them and and although it's not a proselyting mission you can still you can proselyte sure as much can. by service as as sure you can as uh, actually preaching Absolutely, and uh, and so that's been a real helpful thing. One thing it tends to do, as as even in the Mormon Church, it tends to grow up young men, mm-hmm. and young women, and, and and shows them a bigger picture when they when they commit to that kind of service. Sure. As far as proselyting is concerned, like really dealing with with converts, that's primarily done by more like older seasoned, gotcha uh, individuals and and. That that might contact our our group and say, hey, I've been wondering about this, and and then you interact and and deal with them almost like on a one on one missionary Good. program rather than rather than sending out missionaries to go and go preach the gospel and and try to gather in converts. It seems seems to me like it's it's I hate to say premature, but when you're when there's so much strengthening at home that needs to be done, right? There's so much missionary work, just strengthening the body of of people, that it it seems a little bit counterintuitive to let those slip away while you run and go see if you can bring more in. Sure, and sure. So yeah. that's kind of where we are at this point, still evolving, um, but trying to trying to take care of what has kind of been put into our hands. Gotcha. If someone wanted to reach out. To, to you guys to, to to investigate is that something that's possible mm-hmm, how would they do that um, they contact me okay and uh, you know and and uh, of course everybody everybody knows you and then you could just say here here's here's Steve's number call him yeah he's happy I'm at any given time I'm talking to two or three different people at any given time and I could certainly help them or help direct them to somebody more interesting you know that's not a problem oh no you seem pretty interesting so <laughs> don't sell yourself short how do you how do you view the mainstream lds church you know um growing up growing up had a lot of like almost to the point where they 
because of some of the stories, they were almost the enemy. Mm-hmm. Because of the old fundamentalist stories, you know, they they persecuted, they got our fathers in prison, they did this, they did. And, you know, maybe there were individuals that did that. But like most prejudice... They're not alive today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I go, really, prejudice is the child of ignorance. And, uh, and when you get to know people, and I've met some absolutely fantastic people in the Mormon church, um, not only some of the leadership, but just even stake presidents, bishops, and different men that were living their religion so much better than, than me or, or even most people that I knew. You literally, they, they literally be, was living what they believed. And, and I just, it just put all profound respect towards them. The church as a whole, uh, I have a problem. I have a problem, as, and it's probably an obvious problem, because I feel like that they have grown so big, they've made concessions. Mm-hmm. They've had to make concessions. Just, just even the tax-free status has made has has altered decisions. It's made them vulnerable because they have to they have to do certain things. And I get it. I'm not being hard on them. I don't know what I would do if I was staring at millions upon millions of dollars by one decision. Right. I don't know what I would do. But to me I feel like that they've grown so big and they have there's a need to be popular that sometimes the fullness of the gospel is not popular. Right. And so we make concessions. Individuals have been I mean I mean profound individuals. Hugh Nibley was I mean even fundamentalists that that knew him and he knew mm-hmm. them. They kind of kept a quiet relationship, uh, but Hugh Nibley was just, you know, was an incredible man, and and many others. They, ab- I believe, they really, really helped establish. Avraham Gileadi, another just, you know, amazing man. You know, and and those those types of personalities aren't done in the LDS Church, right? right? I just released an episode today with Hannah Stoddard. I think she does fantastic work. On yeah. keeping the original true narrative of alive, Kimberly Watson Smith. I had her on an episode. She made a better case for plural marriage than most fundamentalists I know. Yeah, bar none, right? Uh, Ken Peterson, great man, good scholar, did a whole book about uh, Mormonism in the Apocrypha, finding Mormon teachings. In oh there. yeah. I, so he's. There are still people there, and and I agree with you. And and here's the other thing I've said, and this is both true strategically, but also true, just on on a personal level. If we disagree with the LDS Church, and we do, and we should, yeah. However, if all we can do is tell people what we're against and never tell them what we're for. Why would you want to go there? Right. As fundamentalists, we better get into a position to where we can start telling people what we're for. They'll figure out what we're against. Right. But let's tell them what we're for. Yeah. Let's tell them why it is we believe what we believe and what the blessings are, and the rest will take care of itself. So I agree with you. I, I'm not a big fan of bashing on the LDS church. I'll certainly call a spade a spade when I feel like it's necessary. Right. But... There's a way to do that 
where you're leveling fair criticism and not just spouting at the lip because you're pissed. Yeah. And and that, that to me is huge. So Well, I, and I've appreciated I've really appreciated, like, you know, I mean, I've read, I didn't know who Hannah Stoddard was. I end out reading some of her stuff. And, and I'm really impressed with, with, I think probably the thing that impressed me the most with her was there was a sense of goodness about her mm-hmm. and this real genuineness that wanted to, to uh, continue to hold the name of the prophet Joseph in reverence instead of instead of almost degrading him to make him feel like he's just as, just about on the same caliber as most of us guys, you know. Right. And I know he was human. That and there's there is that balance that needs to be there. But it almost seems like that it became it started to become popular and a little bit in vogue to to make the prophet Joseph just a little more of an idiot than he was. Yep. And he was he was an amazing man. Yep. And uh, I mean, highly gifted of God and blessed, uh, uh, just a tremendous individual. And and I'm really impressed when I see people like that. It it really gives me uh, a newfound hope uh, in that there's a lot of good good people in the Mormon Church today. Um, Kimberly Watson Smith. I again didn't even know her. And read some of her writings and 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 just things that she said. Listen to the podcast and just just I just go wow. They just you know it 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 feels so good when you're when you're just even wanting to fight a battle. Yeah. To think there's people like that fighting in the same direction that you want to fight. Yeah. You're just like you're just like okay. So we got a few differences. Yeah. Hey, let's 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 not worry about that. Let's let's stay focused on this. Yeah, I get goosebumps every time I think about this because this came to me quickly one night um, as I was praying about things. And this podcast has made me hopeful because for a while I was like, oh, we're so far apart. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, how are we going to get this all done? Here's what I've come to learn by reading scripture. Our God is a God that loves a dramatic ending. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing I know for sure about evil, it always overplays its hand. I don't know how it all works, but I believe this to my core. At some point, it's going to look really, really, really bad for us. And when I say us, I'm not talking just fundamentalists, traditional LDS folks in the LDS church. And God's just going to say, stand with everyone he's working with, and evil will be surrounded. As I've done the podcast, and I've seen different people from different walks of life expressing Mormonism and fundamentalism in the ways they do, I'm less inclined to say, oh no, they're off base, they're out of order, or any of those other things. I tend to look at it as, no, they're doing what they're supposed to. God's got them right where they want to be right where they need to be in order to be of the most service to him and mankind. And I firmly believe that. Yep. And, and, and I, I tend to, I tend to look at this viewpoint for me and it's helpful for me is to, instead of worrying about, you know, what group somebody's in or, or even what group is more right or whatever it is. I look and I say, I say, what I'm really more interested in is the principles of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And those that want to espouse those principles of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, is to me is is, you know. And if I see that being done, uh, you know, in the in the mainstream LDS church, 
I want to support and, and do anything I could for that. And if I when I see when I see the fullness of the gospel being destroyed among fundamentalism, then I want to I want to stop that or or at least raise a voice against that. Because it's really to me it's far more I I get it and I don't want to to act like that authority doesn't matter. I know there's there's authority and God acknowledges Prophet Joseph, you know, there's there's no salvation between the lids of the Bible without a legal administrator. I get that. I know that that's important. But what I'm more concerned, I, that's a simple matter for God. Right. It's it's not a simple matter to get saints. Right. And so that's the thing is is and people to even understand the fullness of the gospel, let alone endeavor to live it. Right. I mean, you know, people to say, you know what, well, and again, it's it's better than nothing, but to say, well, we'll live plural marriage in the next life. And I'm just, there's part of me that goes, having engaged in that, I'm like, well, good luck trying that. Right, right. Because because it about takes all that you can do when you've got a human body to work with. And right. I don't know how that would work in the next life. Right. But but I'll tell you, there's something. There is something about this life experience. Mm-hmm. To engage in it, to live it, and to at least make a good, solid attempt at the fullness of the gospel. Yeah. Has the ability and the power to help make saints out of people. And to throw it into a theoretical perspective that says someday down the road we'll get to live this way. I'm just not sure how that's going to work. No, it doesn't make sense, does it? Right. No. Not, not when when as Mormons we've been raised with this, this I this uh, perspective, this eternal perspective of right. a preexistence, and now this. Where do you see Mormonism going as a whole, and fundamentalism? You know that's a, that's that's really is a, a tough question. I I got a brother. I've got a brother that that left our society and he joined the Mormon church and and he's since left the Mormon church and primarily not because he's lost his faith, but he just says, I just don't like the direction this is going. He says, there's good, good people here. He just says, but he says, I start seeing people, you know, and he says, when leadership starts joining hands with some of the, big political organizations of this world he just says he just says we're we're selling things away and uh he just says i'm i'm really nervous about this and this covid thing i i know it shook up a lot of people um and for good reason i think i think we needed to be shook up um you know i I, I would like to say that we could all just kind of get on the same track and would all accept the fullness of the gospel and, and we could all kind of come back together and become one big, beautiful people. But I'm probably, if, if that is, does happen, I, I see it probably not in my lifetime. Unless, but unless some really radical things shake people up. Because this in... Just psychologically speaking, when you start investing in a story and you invest in that story for very long, it's a difficult job to stop and turn around and say, hmm, maybe this, this, maybe this wasn't right. I mean, you see it in the fundamentalist people 
see it in the Mormon church. Probably as, as concerned as I've ever been is when I start seeing a softening towards this woke ideology. Right. I, that just, that to me, it, it starts to, it starts to make me go, we, we're, we're in trouble. We're, we're in trouble. We're in trouble if we start, if, I mean, we literally, I mean, we're, we're buying into Satan's system. Yep. And, uh, and, and if you want to say it on a broad scale, and I don't care whether it's fundamentalism, I don't care whether it's LDS or Christian or Catholic or whatever it is, when we, we buy into that, that is just, it's, it's, it's anti-God. Right. And, uh, and I just, and I go, that, that terrifies me probably as much as anything that we we'll, there will ever be a reconciliation. I've almost gotten to the point where I don't think there will be. I think the reconciliation comes when the Savior does. Yeah. I, I, I honestly do. But in some ways that should be liberating too. Because now, now we don't have to wait anymore, Stephen. Right. Now we can just go about the work of doing what our forebearers did. Well, probably your forebearers. I'm, I'm the only bearer in my family. But to, to go forward and do the work that, that Joseph did, that Brigham right. did. That, our, that, that those ancestors did in carving out an existence out of the wilderness. We get to do it all over again. Right. And that's great. That, that's opportunity. That's, yep. that's a chance to do it again. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's it's uh, not only liberating, it's, it's energizing in the sense to, to really, because your faith, your faith in Mormonism becomes more real. And and to me, like I said before, when I meet the Prophet Joseph, you know, I would like to be able to look at him and at least in some small measure say, I lived the same gospel you did. Right. I tried. I understand in a small measure what what the fullness meant. Right. Now I don't know whether I'll ever get there. To me it's it's far more I doubt sometimes my own my own righteousness but what i do want to be is i do want to be fighting on the right side yeah that's i don't want to get over there and find out i i've been i've been fighting on somebody else's side right no i agree anything else you want to go over you know it's good good wrap up i think there's one one idea and i was thinking about this uh uh, just remembering a, an experience that I had several years ago, and I think it'd probably be a good kind of a good summing up of everything. Um, I, I had a, I don't claim a lot of real spiritual experiences in the sense of divine angels and things. I've had some profound dreams, and I've had I've had a fair amount of some real inspiring things that happened to me. But I, I, I had an experience years ago where I saw something, and it was for a very brief moment, but it made a huge impact in the, in the, uh, in the way I view things. And uh, I can't describe it, because I don't know have words to describe it, but as close as I can get to it, it was like looking at a puzzle. It was like looking at a giant puzzle, and every piece fit, and it fit very nicely, and every piece mattered to that place to make the picture whole. And we each had a piece. We each had our piece that, that fit. And the greatest joy 
came to us when we fit in our place instead of each individual wanting to be a corner or an edge or whatever it was we all fit we all fit in our place and it was important that we all make sure that all the pieces are there mm. and maybe that metaphor works because as a as a kid i used to do puzzles with my mother I was just a little kid and, and she'd sit down and we'd do puzzles together we'd we'd always go buy them from the secondhand store and so invariably there's a piece or two missing you know and you'd get to the end of this puzzle and there's one piece missing and you're searching everywhere for it and and it's incomplete and i'll do puzzles with my kids today and purposefully i i take i take a piece out and i put it in my pocket to make a point right and there we are and we're all frantically searching for that last piece and finally i just, I just pull it out of my pocket and complete the puzzle and 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 they all they all taste that picture and what that means and when we can start to look at things look at our brothers and sisters and look at god's children as pieces of that puzzle and realize that the puzzle isn't complete if we lose one and we 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 pick up a, a an attitude of service instead of our own ego it doesn't have to be about my piece making the picture right it's just i want to i want to i want to be a piece i just want to be a piece of of god's work and and i want to help other people fit in their place and be who they need to be and this doesn't have to be a competition right who's greater than who or who got the highest authority than than who and right where we all stand i i go Somebody said, well, what, by what authority are you guys doing what you do? And I just said, you got all the authority in the world to do good and to do right. Right. And when you do right, that's God's authority. Yeah. And so God gives us the authority and the power to do good and to, and to help his church and his kingdom in whatever way he wants us to. Right. And so... For me, to sum up, I, I'm not so worried where other people are or what other people feel like they should be doing. I, I, I've said this to many people. Well, who are you guys? And I said, well, for me, we're just, we're a tree in the nethermost part of the vineyard, trying like hell to keep it from dying. And right. maybe we can help the kingdom as a whole grow by keeping one part of the kingdom alive. So... That's kind of a probably a sum up. Dude, that's beautiful. That's awesome. We've gone three hours. Holy smokes. Goes quick, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it goes quick for me. You talking to me, that might be longer for you. But um, <laughs> I, I sure appreciate you, Stephen. And, and I've loved the conversation. And I've said this before. If you've been on here once, you have standing invitation to come back anytime you want. You let me know what works for you. But let's definitely do this again. I really, really enjoyed this. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see what feedback you get and how much hate mail you get. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll sure not want to do that again, do no, you? No, no, it's but good. Most of the hate mail I get is because of what I do. So you don't most, have to worry about Most of the time, quite honestly, Dave, the thing that uh, 
uh, I love to be a part of things that are growing, and I love to see people that are trying, be they in the Mormon church and or in any fundamentalist group, whatever they are. If you believe in the fullness of the everlasting gospel and you're willing to you're willing to have enough courage to step out and do something about it, you're my friend. Oh, I appreciate that. I can feel the same way about you. So, and uh, yeah, absolutely. All right, awesome. Thanks so much. Okay, bye everybody. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.